everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. Today we're going to be talking about Tintin in Tibet. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And here's what we do at the beginning of every episode. We let you know who we are. Uh, I'm a professional comic book writer. I write for The Simpsons and Futurama Comics. I have never read Tintin before doing this show. My friends have said, read it, and I've gone, I will, and then I didn't. So now I am, so stop saying do it, because I am. And my partner in crime in this endeavor is... My name is David Dedrick, and I am a, a longtime Tintin fan and a big fan of Hergé's artwork. And one of those guys that uh, was saying, read it, read it. Yes, I think I lent... I gave you uh, three books for your birthday one time. And, That's right. Uh, I believe I lent you The Black Island, and you did not bother to pick no, it up. No, I'm a terrible friend. <laughs> and yet I still ask you to help me move. But, you know, I, I understand. It's kind of like when someone loves a song and they, and they give it to you... To, you know, and they go, you have to listen to the song, and they play it for you. And then you uh, listen to it, and you're kind of like, mm, that's okay. Well, you but it's not, yeah, you're you not in that place for it, you know. You're, yeah. yeah. What they need to do is just kind of like, when you have time, when you're in the mood, listen to the song. Right. And, you know, you'll probably enjoy it. But well, it's, it's just also, hard to... Well, it's, it's similar, too, to when uh, you like a television series. Yes. And you're like, oh, you got to watch this show. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the first couple of episodes aren't the best. But you should watch it so you get... Okay, so just watch... In fact, the first season. Yeah. Watch the first season of... The, okay, but the second season really get... But the third season is amazing. So all I'm asking you to do is go through all of this before we get to the stuff that's so really, really good. And I'm not saying that the stuff at the beginning was uh, was not great. I am kind of saying that. Uh, but it was interesting. It was a very mm -hmm. different book when it started yeah. to the point where we're at now when we've got fully developed characters. Yeah. Like really fully developed characters. Mm -hmm. There's a lot... Uh, the world uh, feels more real, dense. Uh, there's a lot to play around with. Uh, whereas at the beginning it was uh, cuckoo bananas. Mm -hmm. You know, you're on a you're in a car and it explodes and you walk away like your bug's money. Yeah, and even to the art, where in the beginning the line was very thin, and that might have just been the fact that it was how much it was being shrunk down for these albums. Right. The, but you know, I prefer them the later ones where there's a little bit more of a line to it. That you know, there's I just find that even as a a Young teen, when I was reading them as a teen, I didn't really, I wasn't a hundred percent behind the the early ones in terms of the artwork. But the stories I've always liked, so I can't really even something like Tintin in America, which would have been the the earliest that I would have read. The mm -hmm. other ones, you know, Congo and and Land of the Soviets were not available at that time for anyone to read uh, unless you were French and could and picked up the um, the Hergé archives. But those weren't available for your your average Joe here in North America. So yeah, that. Yeah, it's quite a bit, you know, and I agree with you. And also, you know, for a lot of people that are, 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 a lot of people, a lot of people listening to this show, listening to the show are, are listening to it and are being nostalgic about it. You know, these books are books from their youth mm -hmm. that they read at a particular time that the sweet spot in their lives that these books really, really meant a lot to them. And I'm curious to know, uh, to hear from listeners that have picked it up, like you have just started to read the books with the show. And are experiencing them for the first time, and their thoughts, what I'm interested in too, because it's a different experience than people like myself who read them as a teenager or as a young man, and now to read them now, you know, and I've read them lots of times, so not being, I'm never surprised by them. But it is surprising to read them in terms of chronology, like to sit and read them all from beginning to end, right. from the very beginning. Like, I never read Land of the Soviets, and then onwards from there, you know, like that was my first. First time reading it as part of a chronology of Tintin. Now, so. if you, yeah, if you're a traditionalist, you want to read them all in order. It would be interesting, and I say this, you know, maybe it won't be interesting, but to, if you were trying to introduce a new reader to Tintin, yeah. what would be the books you'd start with and then go, now you can read the older ones now that you've got an idea who the characters are and you're probably mm -hmm. going to be a lot more forgiving. 
Uh, and then where w- where would you lead to? Would you start with the best? Would you start? With yeah, the... I would personally answer. You know, I would almost follow the uh, publication dates of the British books. I'd almost start with with Secret of the Unicorn, Red Rackham's Treasure, and work in that way. So and you're then, doing basically what the films are doing. Well, well, what the what the British what the British publisher first did, what Methuen did when yeah. it started it. It started with those books as well. It picked the best of what had you know and and. You know, they probably, it wasn't until those books came out that they probably looked at it and went, you know what, we could really make, we could really sell these here. They're probably looking at the earlier ones and going, I don't know, Miss, you know, this shooting star, I don't see, I don't see it, you know, grabbing the public, you know, like, because it's a pretty specific, time-specific book. Right, it's also you an know. odd start, like the world's ending. Yeah, the yeah, world's that's ending. A, that's a very strange. It's very dreamlike. Yeah. It has a lot of, you know, very outlandish sci-fi elements to it. Uh, Which, if you're a certain type of reader, maybe that's the one. That, that's the thing too. You gotta, you gotta uh, hook a person by what they like. Yeah. If a person likes space, well, obviously you're gonna give them the moon books. Sure. If a person likes, uh, you know, maybe the big fan, uh, big fan of the giant ant movies of the fifties, <laughs> then yeah, Shooting Star is probably for you. You like Lawrence of Arabia? I've got the crap of the Golden Claws for you. Yeah. Enjoy that. Uh, you know, you like pirates? No, yeah. Secret of the Unicorn is your is your entry point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true, and. And I and I think that what's most important is that um, it just you just have to be in the right frame of mind for mm-hmm. it. If you're resisting at all for anything, not just for Tintin, anything at all that someone tries to show you, make you read, play for you, anything. If you're not there, then you're not going to enjoy it, and mm-hmm. that's just how it is. So. This was an interesting. Uh, I um, my niece is uh, ten, mm-hmm. uh, and she and I was asking her if she'd read any Tintin because I had all the books. There and she went. Oh yeah, I know this one. And uh, she went, oh, there's the funniest scene. And she tried okay. to show me what the funniest scene was, and she couldn't find it. Oh, but dear. she went, it's so funny. So I'm very curious to like lend her this book again and okay. go like take more time. And Which show book me. was it? You, you, it's you, this one. Uh, oh, okay. Tintin in Tibet. Oh, yeah. Her and her friends thought like, it was, and I and I, I think it's the scene where uh, the captain's just uh, in some snow and yelling, and it snow hits him in the face. Oh, okay. That sounded like what she was describing. Yeah, but yeah. She was just like, it's the funniest thing mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And she just and she just seen that scene in the. Book okay. To, she hasn't read the whole book. Yeah. Though, so yeah. I might try and hook her on this. Interesting. Uh, with that. Interesting. So yeah. So we're gonna do uh, Tintin in Tibet or Tintin au Tibet. Tibet. Do they say Tibet in France? I have no idea. I don't know either. But let me uh, tell the folks what uh, how we normally do this. Oh yeah. That's uh, spoiler spoilerific. All right. That's that's true. We're gonna be going page by page with the through the book. So obviously spoilers. If you want to read the book first, that's up to you. If you don't. Live your life as you see fit. We respect that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before we do that, normally Dave gives a little bit of context as to where Hergé is in his life, where Tintin is as a character, and that sort of thing. Uh, we just give some general uh, ideas yeah. uh, about it. Maybe we talk about the cover. Uh, this sure. is another in a long line of back of the head of Haddock covers, <laughs> which, uh, you know, if you're uh, familiar with North American comics, that's very unusual. You very seldom uh, get the back of any character's head in a North American comic. Everyone's always facing uh, facing front. Yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, here there's enough confidence, I feel, to back of the head. But yeah, the captain gets a lot of back of the head in these covers. Well, we can talk about the cover in a Sometimes minute. Sometimes even Tintin's <clears throat> back of the head yeah. in, in these covers. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. We have talked about that, and we can talk about it in a minute. Let's just No, talk I think about... we're done. It's just, just, he's got a back of the head. Done. I think <laughs> that topic is over. Uh, there's, other, there's other things to talk about. Um, okay, well, uh, rather than say when this was started being published, let's go back, because I'm going to go back before this book was even begun. So let's we're going to go back. in the Wayback Machine. We're going to get in the Wayback Machine. So uh, first thing is, this was a deeply personal book for Hergé. Which I think is why it kind of stands out of the books we've read so far in terms of 
in terms of developments, like we've suddenly almost reached a place where it kind of pulls back a little bit. Um, so, and you know, so it was because it was, it was written at a time of great personal crisis for him. And it was kind of like the Boy Scout had finally met the man. So the Boy Scout Hergé had finally met the grown-up man Hergé. And a big part of his story of this time can be pretty much summed up with the word guilt. Just this incredible amount of guilt that just sat on his, on his, on his back. About what? Well, I mean, he'd kind of rejected Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. He'd embraced some of the Oriental philosophy he'd learned from, from Chang. Uh, while doing the Blue Lotus. He was very interested in Taoism and Buddhism, and he studied meditation and stuff like that. Yet, despite that, it was hard to escape your childhood, what you've had inculcated in you from from your early childhood. And just that whole sense of uh, the kind of burden of guilt and sin was something that he'd carried around. And, you know, like in 1952, for, he was speeding along in his lancia, had a terrible accident, and uh, he walked away unharmed. But Germain, his wife, spend the rest of her life with this terrible limp from it. Mm. That's guilt, you know. So this person that you've fallen out of love with, you've injured, and they always carry this, they always carry the scar of, of what you've done to them, you know. So every time you look at her, you're thinking, I would love to leave her, but she's walking around with a limp because of me, you know. So it's a sense of you owe her something. You owe her because she was there at the beginning of, of, of Hergé, that, yeah. or uh, Hergé becoming Hergé, Hergé of, yeah. of Tintin becoming this this success. You know, she was part of that. She was... Um, a major component of that success at the beginning. Uh, at the same time, Father Wallet, who we've talked about, who was the editor of uh, Le, Le Vingtième Sacre, who started Le Petit Vingtième, that was the original home of, of Tintin, who was a co-creator of Tintin in the sense that he told Hergé he should write a comic about a boy with a dog. Right, okay. You, know, you can sure. give him a little bit of credit, right? I don't, you know, 5%, something. It was a, okay. It was a start to sure. it. Sure, right? all right. Uh, he... He was uh, convicted of uh, war crimes, of uh, as a collaborationist, in 1950, uh, 1947, and was sentenced to four years in prison. Um, in 1950, he was released from prison because he had cancer. He was dying of cancer. And so Hergé and Germain were there to, to pick him up, and they took him home and took, looked after him, uh, set him up. And then even he spent the last three months of his life living in their house. And Hergé spent a lot of time sitting beside the bed taking care of him, and was there when he died. And he was there at his funeral. There's very few people attending the funeral. He'd you know, fallen in the world from what it was, a great success of the editor of Le Vantium Siacle to this yeah. broken man. And Hergé felt like he'd lost a father, but he'd also lost a tether to Germain. Because Father Willet was a person who had married them. He was a person that brought them together. They're, they didn't come together out of love. They didn't come together out of any other uh, passion than their love of Father Olay, who right. both of them respected a great deal. And when he told them, you two should get married, they said, oh, I guess that's a good idea because you're Father Olay telling us that. And so uh, it's, you know, so the man who had inspired Hergé's life up to that time, this sort of very upright, rigorously moral life, he was gone, you know. So Germain uh, might have had influence over the moral life of Tintin, but she really had no control over Hergé. In 1956, in June of 1956, uh, a young colorist was hired for Studio Hergé, this woman named Fanny Blamink, and she was hired as, an, as a colorist. She wasn't actually a fan of Tintin. Mm -hmm. She didn't really know who Hergé was, but she admired him right away. She just met this man as very kind, very gentlemanly gentleman, and just admired him right away. And what started as a you know, working relationship blossomed into a romance. Oh, okay. And five months after she was hired, they kissed for the first time in an elevator ride together. 
And how his, do we know this? How do we know about the kissing in an elevator? That sounds very private. Hergé said so. Oh, okay. And then, the, you know, Fanny's still around. I suppose she could uh, counter. Confirm. Yeah, right. she'd either counter this or confirm very good. it. All right. Uh, and so this was this was a major change in Hergé's life. And if you can have three major changes in his life so far, the invention of Tintin, the creation of Tintin, right. uh, the end of the war, yeah. the time as a his time as an Ancevic. And now this change from Germain to Fanny, this, and actual love, not just yes. respect, not a mutual respect. Or obligation. Or obligation, yeah. Or Someone, you've got a limp. We better, we better <laughs> yeah. stay together. Yeah. What, for the, chil- that's for powerful, the children? No, not for the children, for the limp. But that's a powerful motivator, that kind of guilt that you feel responsible for hurting someone. That, yeah. That's a powerful motivator. Yeah, but you're hurting them more by staying with them if, if things are that. More so than the limp. You're yeah. limping, you're making them limp in a lot of different ways. Of course, you can be secret all you want, but as soon as something like this happens, everyone in your life who's close to you know it. So all his studio mates knew what was happening in his life, knew right. that he was with her. And a lot of them just said, you know, Eri's having a midlife crisis. This young, beautiful woman. Uh, and actually, she was a schoolmate of a friend's daughter, uh, Paul Germain, who worked at uh, Le Soir. Right. I was a, another person, another Ancevic. And But it was more than that because... So what was the age difference between them? About 25 years. Ah, okay. Ah, uh, Europe. <laughs> of any time. Understood. A successful man. Yes, I understand that, but also <laughs> Europe. Okay. Uh, there's lots of... Look at Donald Trump's uh, Let's girlfriend. Not. Let's not do that. I think it was Hugh probably Hefner? different. No, the way they Hugh do it in, he, like, the way they do in Europe is different. 97? I know, Frank Sinatra. I got it. We, got the, we can do a list. <laughs> I understand that. But I'm just saying, and I will say again, ah, Europe. Okay. Uh, it was more than just a... Midlife. I mean, it was partly a midlife crisis that he was going through. But he was going through a midlife crisis anyway. He was doing all the, exactly. the dropping out and like wandering mm-hmm. around and mm-hmm. just uh, vanishing for periods of time. Sure. At the beginning of his re- relationship with Jermaine, she was kind of the catalyst of his life. She was the one who went out. She was the one who took him around and introduced him to people. She was well-read. She was uh, cultivated. And, you know, she opened up a world for Hergé. Over time, the roles reversed. She became... Uh, and it's not entirely her fault, I don't think. I think that she embraced a role that was given to her in the, in culture of that time. And it was a very limiting role. And if you were a woman who had worked for a newspaper, had, you know, co-edited a children's supplement, had, you know, walked hand in hand with your husband creating this fantastic success, and suddenly you are now a house, housewife, you know, with some maids you maybe boss around, depending how wealthy you are, or you just make the, you do the cooking and stuff like that and the cleaning, you have yeah. no children. You have a cat. You know, it's a very limiting life that you, and so it was, it probably, you know, had this, I don't, I think, don't think it was entirely her fault that she became this suddenly, it, it, from her being the outgoing person, she suddenly became this limited, probably a scold, because there's not, not much else to do but to mm-hmm. nag, and, you know, to try to control and get your sense of power that you've lost because you've, you know, you can't work anymore because of society, you know, you're now a wife right. and you have to live in your house. And that's your role. And so, uh, for the first time for Erge, this was actual real love. And, you know, his life of rigid, buttoned up virtue, you know, under, uh, Father Relay and Germain was over. And now F- F- Fanny brings in this, a new mode of life of like openness and tolerance and freedom. So despite that, despite these big changes, for three years, Erge balanced a relationship. He still was married to Germain and he was seeing Fanny. And Jermaine knew about it. He he openly told her right from the beginning. Yep. Europe. 
Well, that's was, the difference. Your, What's the difference? That's, that's the difference. That's a big difference, actually, yeah. right? It's partly, but also he was very honest. He was very open. He did not like sure. to have secrets. So, you know, even though it hurt Germaine deeply, he told her about it. And what she was most offended by was that to her, Fanny was a lowly colorist working for the studios. You know, she wasn't like mm. some famous actress or singer or something that, you know, he was having some grand passion with. No, it's some little, to her, mousy little girl who, you know, painted the, the pages for Tintin. Uh, now, despite uh, me, the obvious contradictions, Hergé believed he followed a strict moral code. A, to him, a word once given was for life. Like to him, the oath, you know, was oath till, till sure. death. And so he could not bring himself to renounce Germaine. His, he could not bring himself to renounce his vows. His, yeah. You know, it was a twice-blessed marriage, right? Once by the Catholic Church, once by Father Willet. Mm-hmm. And to him, it would be a denial of his faith, even though he'd kind of stepped out of Roman Catholicism. He still had a, a certain amount of belief in it, obviously. Uh, and although he'd begun to explore meditation and the had a deep a moral and philosophical pull towards Taoism and Buddhism and things like that, he couldn't completely escape you know, this feeling of, of this sense of guilt and sin. And so... Good he, job, Catholicism, <laughs> as, a, as a former Catholic. That, there you go. So he could not, you know, so he was trying to be free from her, mm-hmm. but he didn't want to, but at the same time, be free from sin, be free from blame, uh-huh. yeah. be free from shame, be sure. able to look himself in the mirror mm-hmm. and say, I'm still an honorable man. Right. Right? While so, still enjoying the elevator rides. So how could he, yeah, exactly. Uh so all these concerns were pressing on him until he he could barely stand it. And so, as usual, it began to affect his work. Yeah. Uh, he began having these recurring dreams of whiteness. He had these dreams where everything in the dreams was white and silent. And so he'd be... Uh, now, there's nothing more boring than someone telling you their dreams. I will admit that. But I'm going to tell you one of his dreams. It's not my dream. So. Okay. Some uh, people have said podcasts can be like that. But anyway, continue. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Oh, imagine a podcast about dreams. That would be terrible. Anyway, mm, continue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so his dreams were really weird. They were kind of frightening, but also strangely humiliating. All right. Anyway, and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you this dream. So you have to imagine it's all white. Gotcha. I was climbing the stairs of a tower where everything, the ground, the walls, the ceilings were covered with dead leaves. I was startled that my walking on this carpet of dead leaves uh, made no sound. At every turn, I expected something terrifying to leap out at me. Finally, filled with fear, I decided to walk down, and looking into the stairwell, I realized that I had reached the seventh or eighth floor. I continued walking down. On one landing, lying on a platform, was a dead body, white. As I touched the leg, it remained in my hand. It was sort of a cardboard tube, very light, and I threw it down the stairwell. At that moment, on the lower landing, a hole opened in the wall, and out came a white skull, then a sort of demon, a large man, terrible and white, who threw the skull and piles of bones and other things into the stairwell. I was terrified he was also going to throw me into the void. I tried to pass him by jumping over space, but he barred me. I knew that I could not get past him and that I had to climb back up again. And a lot of the dreams are like that. They're these very odd set of things like horse's head sticking out of something or okay. da, da, da. But almost all of them always end in a moment of humiliation or impotence. You know, I couldn't get past him, so I had to go back up again. Right. I had to start all over again. I knew I had to leave. I knew it's always things like that. It's mm-hmm. interesting how these stories go. And so, you know, it's pretty, you know, you don't really need to be a dream interpreter to interpret, you know, the whiteness as this Catholic purity that he's, you know, that is encompassing him and limiting him so much. You okay. Know. Sure. That's a way. Yeah. Well, what do you see it as? I see it as snowy. 
<laughs> I, he's throwing bones down the stairs. <laughs> he's like, he's uh, humiliating you because you humiliated me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had enough of this. Why do I have to be your comedy relief? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll go with that. I've changed my mind. It's snowy. <laughs> so he felt when he first started like trying to think of a new story after after the Red Sea Sharks. Mm-hmm. His initial idea was uh, oh, he kind of wanted to go back. He wanted he was you know he's kind of at this time he was coming up to fifty years old. And he's having this sort of nostalgia and all a sense of escape from his current predicament where he's got himself kind of hanging, suspended between two stools. And so his first idea was to do a story would be a return of, uh, to Tintin in America and an elaboration of the plot of the uh, finding oil on an Indian reservation. So the idea is that Tintin uh, finds himself on a reservation trying to prevent unscrupulous oilmen from evicting the Indians to drill for oil. And the story opens on the road to Marlin's Bike. And there's been a traffic accident involving a Sioux. And at the hospital, the man is delirious and mentions a peace pipe, a tomahawk, and a monastery. So Tintin discovers there's a monastery that has an exhibit of Indian artifacts. So he goes there and finds that the peace pipe has disappeared. And it turns out in the peace pipe uh, contains a, uh, like a, you know, title, title of, you know, deed for the land that would prove that the uh, Native Americans own it. And that they can't be evicted. Okay. So that's this a story. Is a hidden piece of paper in the pipe? That's right. Okay. That's right. That's a, that's a bit like the uh, Secret of the Unicorn. Mm-hmm. A little bit rolled mm-hmm. a piece of paper. Sure. So Erje even called on one of his one of his uh, friends in the religious orders, uh, Father Gall, who we've talked about, who was known as Lakota Ishnala, the Lonely Sioux. He was this French or Belgium uh, abbot, lived in a monastery in Belgium, had never been to America, but had taught himself to read and speak Sioux. And he, so he wrote them letters and he's, he lived in this little turret in this monastery, a little round room, almost like a teepee. And it was just covered with all this, these Indian artifacts, like headdresses and feathers and all these things that he had collected had been sent to him by, by these people. And so Erge asked him to provide him with some background. You know, he wanted someone who, who really was sympathetic to Native Americans who could really, uh, you know, give the background that he could, you know, use for the story. And so, uh, Father Gall provided uh, him with his closely typed like six pages of like really like dense facts about their customs and their disagreements with the American government and their exploitation by white men and and even stuff like the fact that they were uh, some of the first people on the shores of Adi- uh, Normandy at D-Day just things like that like yeah. just yeah and so but I think instinct as he, as he worked on it I think Erje felt this instinctively that this was backward looking and he stopped stopped it he so his next idea was he wanted a story that had no villains, guns, or violence. So having said that, he then concocted a story that had all three. His idea then was he plotted a story involving Nestor and some kind of like judicial mix-up that sees him incriminated for a murder that he uh, that was committed by the Bird Brothers. Oh! Wow, I know. Uh, but that as far as that went. His next... He somehow... Um, he After reading that, even when he was writing it, he uh, he kind of had you know he kind of was making notes for other ideas that that pushed it into the idea of whiteness you know he wanted to also introduce element he wanted to be backwards looking Mm -hmm. he wanted to have this element of whiteness to it so his next idea was to go back and in the the 30s he had plotted or thought about doing a story about uh tintin in alaska and so he kind of developed that idea and he made it into the adventure was kind of set in canada or greenland and the idea was that the polar exploration party is struck down by food poisoning and they send out an SOS to Professor Calculus. Of course, he doesn't hear it. And so, no. And, uh, <laughs> and he did a lot of 
pre-planning for it, he drew out, he drew sleds and icebreakers and, and snowshoes and all that kind of stuff. And, and he, he, uh, marked, he wrote down names for the characters and, uh, everything, but the story just went nowhere. You know, I think he got to a certain point and just couldn't see how to develop it in, in, in an interesting way. Right. Uh, so his, when he was doing the, when he was planning the, the, the murder mystery with Nestor, on one of the sheets of paper on the, that he was plotting on, he just stopped everything and he wrote on there, um, he wrote on it, general theme, very simple, but what? Tibetan wisdom, the Lama, abominable snowman, why do they leave for Tibet? The Yeti? Question mark, he wrote. So he was working on it. Yeah. And so he also decided it needed to be a voyage of self-discovery for Tintin as well. And so if it's a voyage of self-discovery for Tintin, it's going to be a voyage of self-discovery for Erge. And so that's where Chang came in. So Chang's friendship, both the real Chang and the fictional Chang, was a line that ran from the past for Tintin and Erge, and it ran from the past into the present and into the future, in the sense that he still is their friend. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's still possible that they'll meet him in, at some time, either now or in the future. It's not just backwards looking. It's a part of their consciousness that carries on. Right. So, you know, and, ha- and having worked with Chang at a particularly happy time in his life, and he was doing the Blue Lotus, and, you know, and had such a great time working with him, you know, he felt this real closeness to Chang that was probably partly romanticized. It's, you know, because of that, the memory was so important. Yeah. It kind of grew in dimensions bigger than it was. So, you know, he, he has, has this idea. He envisions, he's envisioning this idea, this voyage of redemption for himself through his alter ego, Tintin. So only the captain, who is, uh, Hergé's, kind of reflects his dual nature. So we have Tintin, the Boy Scout element of Hergé, and Captain Haddock, the reality, the grumpy, you know, real person, Hergé. Yeah. Has to be dragged into an adventure. That's right. Those two parts of him have to go on this adventure. So there can be no Thompson. So for the first time, there's no Thompsons in the story. I mean, yeah. even the Moon story, they get shoehorned into it. You know, no wag. Uh, Castafiore returns to her role as a, as a cameo on a radio. And even Calculus, who had become an integral part of, of the house, uh, he just, just has a walk-on part. And, yeah. he's, and he's gone pretty quickly. So uh, now with the addition of Chang and the Tibetan setting, Erge just had this idea that this made a perfect crossroads for Tintin and Chang to meet with the air crash with this idea of him coming to Tintin of it, of it, of it being, you know, something happening to stop it. So air crash. And that's how he started to develop the idea. And, you know, he'd always been fascinated by Tibet ever since he'd, you know, learned about Buddhism and stuff. And what's funny is that he'd had this incredible falling out with Jacques van Malkabeek, uh around the time that the studio started. Probably Malkabeek was a little jealous of, of Hergé's success. You know, Hergé was rising in the world and, uh, Malkabeek, because of his, his, uh, you know, his charges as a collaborationist during the war was very limited in what he could do, how he could be employed. So he was kind of stuck working for Hergé in this uncredited role and kind of yeah. was, kind of resented it. And so they had a big falling out. But before he left, he had presented Hergé with a story based in Tibet. So this was about 1954. Uh, he gave him this story. And and partly inspired by the, a play they did in the 40s together called, uh, oh, what is it called again? Uh, I wish I could remember, because then I would be smart. Oh, Mr. Bullock's Disappearance. Very nice. They You're did smart. This, well done. <laughs> they did this play together. I should have written it down. Fortunately, by the time he started doing Tintin, Tibet, they were friends again. So it wasn't completely Good. really awkward. You know, I'm, I'm going to use part of your story idea. Uh, so at this time, so, you know, this, you know, unlike the last book where it was basically him and Bob Demore who worked everything out together, this one was everybody. So Jacques Martin and Demore and Hergé and, you know, 
anyone who could contribute in this in the studio contributed to this story, uh, to the art and stuff like that. The story alone is Hergé. There's very little contribution from from any of the any of the the studio aids for you know for writing and stuff like that. Very few of the jokes and things like that. There's little very little Martin. It's probably why the bandage that gets put on uh, Haddock's nose in the airplane after he falls off the yeah. doesn't travel around the airplane. But uh, so all the costumes were done by Martin. All the backgrounds by Bob Dumour. All those wonderful mountains. Now and then, Hergé, of course, did all the research for it, and he got a number of books about Tibet. Uh, Secret Tibet by this guy named Fosco Mariani. Heinrich Herr's Seven Years in Tibet. Although I think that's a isn't that a fake book? I'm not Seven sure. Seven Years in Tibet. I'm not sure. I might be wrong. Tibet, My Homeland by Siwang Pemba. Annapurna by Maurice Herzog, who climbed Annapurna. Nanda Devi, the third French expedition to the Himalayas by a couple of French guys, J.J. Langpin and El Payan. And then many books by this Tibetan explorer and mystic whose name was Alexandra David Neal, David hyphen Neal. And her books were filled with all, all the details that he incorporates into the story. Things like, uh, like the beard called Chang and the Chortons that Haddock has, has his tr- trouble with. You know, the statues that you can only pass okay, on the left. Yeah. And then the meal of cooked barley, tea and butter, just stuff like that that you wouldn't think about. They're all mentioned in her books. And yeah, so it's Hergé, very rich with detail. Yeah, Hergé incorporated those into the story. And David Neal was also an eyewitness to the phenomenon of levitation in Tibet. So she swore that she saw uh, a Tibetan monk levitate in front of her. Right, which she, and she didn't. Hergé, yes. <laughs> Hergé noted it was recorded by a good number of highly credible authors. So mm-hmm. David Neal, she said him, and also Fosco Mariani. Uh, claim to have seen it as well. Sure. Okay. They didn't, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> Calling people liars. No, I'm just saying it's a pretty common magic trick that you can look online right now and see how you do it, but go ahead. Uh, these books, so he used these books not only just for their content, but also maps and photographs and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And particularly Erzog's book, which had a photograph of Yeti prints in it. Oh, okay. Um, in the snow. And he talked to Erzog as well about the Yeti. He inter- interviewed him about it. And Erzog swore, swore to him that if you looked at the tracks, they were not tracks of a quadruped. You know, they weren't this, like a bear walking. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, I, he'd seen a bear walking. He'd seen the tracks. He said this was a bipedal animal that was walking. So whether it was a man who passed by and his tracks, had, the snow had melted and made the tracks look bigger, it's hard to know exactly what. Uh, that's my one explanation for why, why the tracks look so big. No, that could be. There's a lot of reasons. Yeah, there's a lot of explanations for abominable snowman and Bigfoot. Though here's an interesting thing. Once everyone got those uh, cell phones with the uh, cameras, uh, we don't get any more pictures of Bigfoot. We don't get any more pictures of the abominable snowman. You would think maybe we would? No, because everyone's looking down Facebooking. That is true. Just walking right on by. That's right. Also of value to Hergé, as usual, was his National Gra- Geographic subscription. Mm-hmm. And full of beautiful color pictures of uh, Tibetan, like the, the ceremonial robes and stuff like that. He borrowed lots of that from, from that magazine. And that was one of the reasons that uh, Jacques Martin loved working for, for Hergé, was that he had unlimited access to Hergé's picture archives, which he used for Alex a lot. Uh, yeah, and one of those, one of those was uh, National Geographic was really invaluable in those days cool. for your for your uh, morgue, your picture morgue. So as with the Loch Ness Monster and the Black Island, having the Yeti in Tantan Tibet was actually really timely. The late 50s was like the day, the time of the Yeti. You know, kind of like the early 70s was the big time for Bigfoot. Sure was, yeah. The, this was the Yeti's turn. Was that was our 50s. big fear when we moved to British Columbia was Bigfoot was here. Is that right? Yeah, that was the uh, end of the 70s. And we we're like, oh, yeah. Bigfoot. Yeah, because it was in everywhere. I remember as a kid, we used to make... We used to cut out our own cardboard Bigfoots yeah. and put skis on them, and we'd ski them down sleek ski slopes. 
You know, because and why would you do it with Bigfoot? Just because he was everywhere. Yeah, there was a uh, fake shoes you could put on. Uh, they could go walk through the snow and scare people. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Uh, so um, now, part of what made him popular was um, was Erge's friend uh, Bernard Heuvelmans, uh, who we talked about before, was the first cryptozoologist. Was kind of the father of cryptozoology, and he'd written a book called "I'm going to call it On the Trail of Unknown Animals." For some reason, everyone keeps translating it as on the track of an... Does that sound right? On the track of unknown animals. What sounds better to you? It could be tracking unknown animals, but not on, on the, the trail, track. Yeah. On the trail of an... Peaced trail. Sure. Right. Come on. I'm on your side. Thank you. I'll back you up. This is, so his book was published in 1955. It's actually published in two volumes. One volume covered Southeast Asia mm-hmm. and kind of the South Pacific, Australia area. And the other uh, covered the Americas, Siberia, and Africa. And basically... Uh, and what... as Well, and so, yeah, he would... You know, he talked about the Yeti in this, but basically what he did was he, he, uh, examined folkloric accounts, like, of animals and regions. And he kind of talked about, is this possible? Like, is it possible that there could be a Yeti? Is it possible there could be a Bigfoot? Is it possible that this animal exists? You know, and then he would go through, he might say no, he might say yes. He might say, you know, in terms of what we know about how, you know, evolution works or how animals, right. you know, this is, seems unlikely and stuff like that. But some of his, at least one of his guesses came true, which was, that he said that there probably was uh, the uh, animal, what's now called the African forest elephant, which up to the 70s had never been discovered. Uh, it was found, like, you know, in the mid-70s, so 20 years after he wrote about it and said it was possible, it was discovered. Was so, he still alive at that yeah, point? Yeah, he was oh, still alive. Oh, that's good. I'm so he could he pat himself it. on the back. Yeah, get the elephant to do it. Yeah. He, um, yeah, he also kind of wrote a book about uh, Bigfoot and Yeti in the mid-70s, so he, cashing in on, yeah, on that. Called, uh It's called um, Neanderthal Man is Still Alive. So his, I guess, his idea is that these were leftover remnants of Neanderthals that had not been completely destroyed by Cro-Magnon in those good old days when everyone ate each other. <laughs> uh, and so, so you know, Heuvelman's approach to Yeti was scientific, just like his approach to the moon landing was scientific. It wasn't sensationalistic, which is what Hergé liked about it, and the same thing that he liked about his approach to the Yeti as well. And so Hergé's approach to Yeti is not sensationalistic. It's very, it's very sympathetic and very true to nature. You know, uh, you know, he was inspired by Hovman. Hovman had a sketch of what he thought it might look like, and so Erge borrowed that and adapted it for himself. Okay. And you know, and I think that Erge's portrayal of Yeti, like I say, is very sympathetic. You know, and I think in a way, if Red Sea Sharks atones for uh, the treatment of blacks in Tantan in the Congo, then the Yeti atones for his treatment of animals in the same book. All right. You know, because it's a turnaround in terms of. It reminded me a bit of the uh, the ape in uh, in Black. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Black yeah, Island. Yeah. What's his name? Drong? No, Drongo. I can't remember his name now. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't Drongo's birth name anyway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That was that was Drongo's. Uh, I think I'm uh, tamed I think, name. You I think to be that. honest, I'm I'm Rongo. <laughs> All right, but uh, Let's move on, move on quickly. <laughs> so yeah, like we're still listening. He used Hoyvelmans, and he also like collected tons of cuttings and stuff about Yeti because it was very big in the news at that time. Yeah. There was uh, Michael Farr who has written a couple books about Tintin. And I think would be classified as a Tintinologist. His father, Walter Farr, worked for, I believe, the Daily Mail and was in charge of an expedition to the Himalayas to search for Bigfoot in the 50s. So, you know, it was big enough that even a newspaper would mount an expedition to go and look for this. Interesting. Okay. Thing. Yeah. And there was an American expedition and stuff like that. Like a lot of people were looking for it at the time. Feels uh, they do less of that stuff nowadays. Yeah, less looking for the Loch Ness monster yeah. or Noah's Ark or that kind of thing. Yeah. Back when we were uh, younger men, the, you would have a lot of that. We've lost our sense of magic. I blame Facebook. Um, 
and then he, in his uh, stories that he'd found, he there was a story of uh, of a young girl being rescued by a yeti and cared for until she was rescued. Mm. So he borrowed, you know took that and put and put Chang in the position of the young girl. So yeah, now. Another thing is, Erge, what are you, gonna, what are you laughing at? Uh, just uh, absolutely the dump. No, I'm not going with it. Go, okay, continue on. Okay. It's not the type of show for that. Sure, I agree. <laughs> I'm going to agree without even knowing what you're going to say. Uh, now, Erge, with his usual, you know, it's funny, he was a very intuitive person and could pick up things without necessarily studying them, you know? We see that a lot in his stories where he's writing about, say, Nazism, uh, you know, He's kind of writing about it before it becomes a real threat. He's already seeing it as a threat, right. you know. And so we see that here where uh, he's kind of focusing on t- Tibet, which at the time had already been conquered by the Chinese. The Chinese invaded it in 1949. Right. Um, but uh, it was still fairly, hmm, I'm sure it was not great, but there was a degree of hands-off control by the Chinese. But in 1959, there was an uprising in Tibet of Tibetans, and the Chinese just came crashing down on it. So near, near the end of, of Tantan and Tibet, suddenly it was in the news. Tibet was in the news as the Dalai Lama fled, and the country was, came under huge control, and monasteries were torn down, and just general mayhem by the communist Chinese. Uh, when the, and it was funny, when the book was published in 2001 in Chinese, in the Chinese language, uh, it was titled, the title was changed to Tintin in Chinese Tibet. Oh, okay. And Mulansart protested against that, and so it was then changed to Tintin in Tibet, uh, the original title. Now, let me just tell you that the story was published in Tintin magazine starting on the 19th of September, 1958, yeah. and ran to the 25th of November, 1959. Halfway through the run, Hergé, once again, had a ma- major crash, a huge crisis of confidence. You know, he was still dreaming these crazy white dreams. Right. And... Uh, he was just paralyzed with indecision. He didn't know what to do. And his old friend, Raymond de Becker, who was one time the editor-in-chief of Le Soir Volet, the stolen Soir, he uh, recommended that um, Tintin go visit this professor, Franz Ricklin, who was a disciple of Carl Jung. Are you, wait, are you saying Tintin shit? Oh, character? sorry. Did I say Tintin yes. instead of Verge? Yes. Everybody take a drink. I think we established that as a game, so I've done it. The first time today. Yeah, if uh, if we confuse Hergé with Tintin, uh, you can uh, consume whatever beverage you choose. We have said they're interchangeable, I believe. But anyway, so Hergé had read all of Jung's works, and he was a real big fan of Carl Jung. He mm-hmm. believed in uh, Jung's theories of the collective unconscious and uh, the interpretation of dreams. And Hergé was a huge fan of dreams, which is why dreams appear a lot in his stories. Mm-hmm. And then uh, also like the story, the union of the individual and the species and the cosmos, all these Jungian ideas he was a really big fan of. So he went to this Ricklin, and he had a very brief meeting with him. He had one session in which he described his dreams, and Rickland said to him, I don't want to discourage you, but you will never complete your work. If I were in your place, he said, it's a crisis that you have to face. Yeah. If I were in your place, I would stop work immediately. You must exercise your demons, your white demons. You must kill within yourself the white demon of purity. Which I love that expression, actually. Okay. So what he was saying to Hergé is, you're wrestling with a lot of issues right now. Uh-huh. And you're not helping yourself by putting pressure to, to, to write and draw this, this comic. What you need to do is take time away, face your problems head on, and deal with them, and get out from underneath this. Erge's reaction to this advice was to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's what most people do with advice. <laughs> I'd say so, 99% of all advice is ignored. So basically what the professor was saying to, to Erge was choose between your inner well-being... Right. Between your health, your mental right. health, and Tintin. Make this choice. Hergé made a decision, which is he's, he decided not to see the psychoanalyst anymore. Right. 
and to finish the story. And basically, he began to quote this scout motto, which was, when in trouble, a scout smiles and whistles. That's what he would say. And so he was determined to work through the book and his own problems at the same time. And he felt that if he finished the book, he would succeed in accepting himself. Well, now, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not jumping ahead of where you're going to go with this. Yeah. But it seems pretty obvious that he just, he recreated the dream in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So it's all whiteness. Yeah. Everything's white. You know, the stairway, he's climbing. A monster comes out full with bones. Yeah. That's all in this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it turns out the monster is actually not that bad. The, the, the deal, what's the problem with the monster? No, he's a good guy. If you got to know the monster, it's fine. So you don't have to be scared of the monster. And you don't have to be scared of the void. Sure. And actually, the environment's not that bad. So, hey, relax. If you, and if you want to read farther into it, you can read Hadakon Tintin hanging by the rope with certain death facing both, facing both of them. If one of them doesn't sever the relationship, mm-hmm. it can be Germain and Hergé. You know, there's a lot of symbolism you can read into the story if you want to. Uh, the fact is, is that... You know, three years of of uh, procrastination and and you know, anger and blame and guilt and everything like that. When Tintin in Tibet was published in book form by Casterman, the day it was published, Hergé was separated from Germaine. So it seemed like this was really did work its way, you know, to the end. You know, he he made a he made a a choice. You know, he chose Tintin. <laughs> he left Germaine behind. Yeah. Uh, now, what's interesting is that, you know, so he leaves his wife of almost 30 years, but he never really, he never really left her at the same time. It actually took another 17 years for them to get divorced. And he would visit her every Monday. He would go to their former house mm-hmm. and he would sit and talk and have a visit with her every, every Monday until he died. You know, so he never completely yeah. abandoned her. And I think that to him in his own mind, it was a way to keep his vow, you know, that I'm still being true to her, even though I've left her, you know, that what the relationship was, what the relationship had become was what they had there, was their weekly meeting to talk to each other, to share in, in their past. And, you know, but the fact was, is that his new relationship with Fanny replaced that old relationship with Jermaine, the, the marital relationship, right. you know, that never really existed other, other than in the mind of Father Willet, I would say. You know, and once he was gone, there was no reason to keep it going anymore. The last thing I'll say, uh, is that, uh, Alternate the last thing you'll say in the context. Of this, yeah, in this yeah. section. Well, the last couple of things I'll say. One is alternate titles, okay. which I love. And they're all kind of the same. So instead of Tan Tan and Tibet, how about this title? The Cow's Snout. Don't mm. like it? Don't like it? How about another one? Where's the cow in this? The Yak's Snout. Okay. Like that one? No? Not no? really. How no. about the Bear's Snout? <laughs> they're all named after a fictitious mountain that was going to be mentioned in the okay, story. Okay, all right. But Casterman said uh, no to those titles. Yeah. And so... A decision made, it was made very early on to call it Tintin in Tibet, or Tintin in Tibet, because it's called that in the magazine. Like, as soon as a magazine run starts, it's Tintin in Tibet. So, um, and it became Hergé's favorite book after, you know, he, he described it as a story of friendship, the way people say it's a love story. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really just, a, it was basically a friendship or a love story to Chang, to his friend Chang, who yeah. he hadn't seen since 1935. And Chang, uh, you know, he always tried to find him. But it was hard because he lived in communist China, which was this very closed off world that people could not penetrate. And so uh, he would go to like Chinese restaurants. If he went to a Chinese restaurant or, or anywhere there was Chinese people, he would have pictures of, of Chang and his name. And he would say, do you know this person? Wow. He lived, he lived in Shanghai. And finally, he was at a dinner party at a restaurant. And he was sitting with this guy named Pierre Wei, who was a Chinese speaking uh, or yeah, Chinese speaking or French speaking Chinese. And he said his usual question, did 
Wei No, a Chinese sculptor named Chang Chang Chen, who lived in Shanghai right. uh, before the war. And it turned out, Wei thought about it and he said, you know, that sounds familiar. And he went, you know what? He was the best man at my wedding. He says, I don't live in Shanghai anymore. My brother still does. I'll get him to see if he can find him. And so uh, Wei's brother went and looked for Chang and he found him and he was living in the same apartment he'd returned to in 1935. And this is in 1975. Wow. And so... Uh, you know, of course, that's amazing. Hergé wrote to him immediately, and they started a correspondence. He he sent him because uh, he never he'd seen the black and white version of of uh, the Blue Lotus, but he'd never seen the color version. And so Hergé sent him the color version of the Blue Lotus and Tintin right. in Tibet. Uh, he sent it he had to send him three times because the first two were confiscated, and it was only by going to the Chinese consulate in Belgium that they were able to actually get them to to uh, Chang, and then. Uh, it was what was unfortunate is like uh, Hergé was not able to travel to Shanghai to visit Chang, because he'd visited Shanghai, uh, sorry Taiwan in 1973, and so that the Chinese would not allow him into gotcha, the country. Yeah. So this uh, Belgian journalist a guy named Gerard Vallet, who was uh, had worked on the film Tintin and sorry Tintin and Me, or I think it's called or Hergé and Me, uh, he took it upon himself to lobby the Chinese government, and finally in 1981 Chang and Hergé met. Uh, unfortunately, by that time. Hergé was already starting to suffer from what I think was leukemia and was already like on the wane physically and was, you know, couldn't. Where did they meet? Uh, they met at an airport. It was kind of like a big press thing where oh, okay. Chang came off the plane and Hergé was waiting for him. But Chang eventually moved to Paris and lived there working on, working commissions and stuff like that. He made a big bust of, of, uh, Hergé for Angoulême. Yeah. And yeah, and they did continue, uh, sort of a friendship, but it could never be what it was. Oh, no, no. And yeah. it could never live up to what Hergé had in his mind in terms of what their friendship was. But uh, still, it's kind of uh, meaningful in that way. Now, how long had it been... Okay, here's here's a question I got for you. So the whole story here kind of revolves around Chang. Yeah. And, you know, I miss Chang and I want to see Chang and worry about Chang. Yeah. Uh, to to your casual reader, yeah. uh, did they know who Chang was? Like, was uh, Blue Lotus in print and was it a popular book that people understood? It was oh, in, that's Chang. It was in print if you were... Uh, it was in print if you were French, but if you read this book in English at first, yeah, you would not have known because the Blue Lotus was not was a very last book translated into English. It was translated in 1981. Besides the land of the Soviets. So yeah, so an English reader would go, oh, what? I guess I'm not supposed to know who this is. It does say it does have a the uh, does have a the you know the little uh, cliff, un- uh asterisk cliff yeah notes. asterisk note that says the Blue Lotus. But yeah, if you weren't uh, not sure if I have that in mind, but we'll uh, we'll see as we go along. It should be on page three. Uh, nope. Nope. Not in mine. Oh, not page three, sorry. Oh, it's not in any of the English ones. Do you know why? Because it hadn't been published at that time. But if you look in the French one on page three... Okay, Dave, me, is, Dave goes French through these here. both in English and French. So we go to page three. Or page trois, if you're en français. Ah, yes, there indeed. <laughs> so, yeah. That's where, oui. was, that's where I was mixed Très up. Bon. So, yeah, that and would, now I'm done with French. <clears throat> that would be why kilometre, blamange... How did you? Uh, that would be the uh, the end. You went to university to study, though. Don't be showing up. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would be why. Because it wasn't translated until 1981, and Tintin in Tibet was pretty much translated in, in order. Okay. By that time, the the later books were translated as they came out by, by Turner and, and Lonsdale Cooper. So, so there. All right. Does that make everybody happy? That was the longest uh, context, I think, ever. Ta-da! So far. 
<laughs> hopefully, so far. Hopefully so now not. we're going to go uh, page at a time. All right. Well, I say we're starting with page one, but we usually start actually with the title page. Is there anything you want to say about the image? Well, I just want to go back to the cover, actually. Whoa! We, I, know we... I, went, I went way too far. All yes, right. You... <laughs> Negative one. We're back on the cover. Okay. Because you kind of, uh, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but uh, something we didn't talk about and something I think is interesting about these covers is is how low-key they are, <laughs> you know. When you say they're not like American, North American covers because you can't see some of the characters' faces, they're also amazingly low-key. But uh, in terms of this cover, what's interesting is that uh, Tintin's original cover was just snow. There were no mountains in it. Mm. It was just a white expanse with the footsteps and then Tintin and Tharky and, and Captain and Captain Haddock Snowy standing there. Uh, but uh, Casterman didn't like it. They felt it was too abstract and had Hergé add the mountains to it. So... So if and you went, but the mountains aren't in my dream. It's yeah, about my dream. Exactly. And I think if you imagine just pure whiteness, actually, it's not a bad cover idea, I don't think. I, I mean, the mountains aren't terrible, but I think if it was just white, it's, it is kind of, it would be kind of impressive looking. All right. Inside, we see a thing. I can't remember what it's called. One of those things? A choltern? It's just one of those things. Yeah. Yeah, let's say choltern. <laughs> Who knows? All right. I could be wrong. So now we're on page one. Wouldn't be the first time. And we're seeing uh, we're seeing a very uh, happy Tintin and a very annoyed mm-hmm. Snowy uh, just <laughs> taking a hike. Yeah, it's weird. Well, the first one, Snowy doesn't look that annoyed, but in the second panel, then he looks very annoyed. Yeah, he's uh, he's back to his old kind of uh, crabby old man uh, faith. Snowy comes across as a bit of an old man in this one. You know, he's very complainy, and then he really likes uh, the, the sauce. You know? yes. He also goes backwards in this in story development. Um, in the uh, magazine version, when this was first published, the top top had a a drawing that stretched across like the whole uh, you know one panel that stretched across the top, and it was basically just like a big uh, landscape, and it had a sign that said "Welcome to Varghese," which is what the resort is where they're staying okay. in the story. I don't know if it's actually mentioned in the story outside of that. Uh, opening title. Yeah, where specifically are they right now? In Varghese, spelled V-A-R-G-E-S-E. Yeah, but where in the world is Varghese? I think it's in Switzerland. Okay. So it's a like a Swiss a Swiss mountain resort. All so, right. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, Snowy's had enough of this whole hiking nonsense. That was very easy for for Erge to draw. He was intimately familiar with uh, Swiss resorts. Yeah. So uh, Tintin's uh, you know hungry, and uh, let's let's go to the hotel where he meets up with the captain, uh, who seems to be having a lovely day. Yes. Uh, and uh, Tintin says he's a bit tired, uh, but the top of but the top of the world, uh, the mountains are superb, and the air's like champagne. What a poet <laughs> Tintin is. Yeah, that probably would like uh, perk up the old captain. Just like, oh, it's like champagne. Mm, I do enjoy alcohol. He must be trying to draw him out of the hotel. That's right. Uh, but uh, yeah, Tintin does suggest that he go he goes hiking and no, and ha- having none of that. Yeah, he doesn't. Well, it's mind. a good it's a good setup for what we know is coming in the story. That, yeah, he doesn't. That the captain violently rejects the mere idea of walking on rocks. That's right. So let's forget about all that stuff. You could get a broken neck, all these problems, no dice. Let's just read the paper, and then we look in the paper and we see there was a Nepal air disaster, and that is going to set our story in motion. Yes. Now, uh, uh, DC-3 has been missing since Monday on a flight from uh, Patna uh, to Kathmandu. It's reported to have crashed in the Gosain uh, Than uh, Massif. Uh, it's believed that the aircraft uh, was uh, driven towards the Himalayas by a violent storm. And uh, Tintin, very sympathetic about the, the whole situation. And uh, the captain uh, takes this uh, opportunity to throw in a dig about, that's your beautiful mountains for you. But then it's dinner time. As the uh, as the sound of dong 
uh, says, and off they go. But we don't want to see them eat dinner, so we're just going to go right to after dinner. Yeah. Uh, and while they're playing chess, very relaxed, extremely relaxed. Uh, what's what's the lady doing in the back in the background there? She's uh, looks like she's, she's knitting, knitting, and she's and scratching then, her head with the oh, knitting scratching needle. her head with the knitting needle. Yeah. I thought she was using the uh, the needle to hold her hair up. She's doing a little business for us. Very good. Uh, but Tintin goes to sleep, and then uh, startled, uh, wakes up. Uh, screaming the name Chang. Yes. Now, this is my favorite panel in the whole comic. <laughs> yes, it's a great panel. I would like this panel as a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. It's, uh, it's, it's everyone, you know, enjoying their after, uh, after meal, you know, what you do after a meal back when there was no, uh, cell phones to look at. Yeah. Uh, people yeah. Pl- playing cards, uh, people playing chess. Uh, calculus is the only one not reacting because he's deaf, so he calmly continues to read a book. Yeah. Uh, someone else is drawing uh, there. That's not anyone that we know, right? The 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 artist, or is he writing a letter? Person's writing a letter. I'm not too sure who you're talking I'm about. I'm referring to the gentleman uh, who's spilling ink right there. This fellow. That's a lady. That's, That's a lady. She has an earring. Oh, you're right. Sorry, I thought that was a bow tie. <laughs> this was uh, my mistake. Yeah. Okay. Shows what I know. You know what? I'm going to throw it over to you since I'm mistaking people for uh, other sexes. Go ahead. Well, I just, you know, what's interesting about this panel for me is it actually reminds me of two different artists. One is... Um, Peo. Who? Do you see Peo there? Like, I basically, like, the, the guy right behind Tintin, that face looks like something you'd see. It does see. have a bit of a Peo, but I was thinking more of H.M. Bateman. Okay. Who did these series of drawings for, like, Punch Magazine called, like, The Man Who, you know, lit up a cigar before the after dinner speech or The Man Who... Uh, you know, did something other, and his drawings would be these big, elaborate drawings of everyone looking very shocked at one person. Okay, and also reminds me of Lewis Williams. I don't know if you know him. He drew no. uh, in the New Yorker, and from the very beginning of the New Yorker, he drew um, these great, you know, clear line. Basically, is this kind of the American version of 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 Tintin, or sorry, of Hergé? Take a drink, everyone. <laughs> uh, he uh, did these fantastic, but he did these huge like uh, drawings. Be like all of like this Coney Island boardwalk and he would draw everyone on the upper walk and everyone down on the beach. And there'd just be these very elaborate drawings, but drawn in just with not color, just white, you know, black and white, just pen and ink and yeah. just really beautifully done. I don't, if you've never seen it, I'm going to make you look at them because oh, they're fantastic. He or, also, or I would say uh, put them on our webpage. I could do that. He, um, yeah, he always illustrated uh, Robert Benchley's uh, humorous articles as well. So he's right. a real, yeah, he's a, Quite, quite a great art, and this, so this, this really reminds me of that. Just the busyness of it, the yeah. how how well it's drawn it's with great. the perspectives and all the chairs and every everything. Well, it's really what this is a really. I'm just going to say, as an artist, this is one of the hardest things to draw. Is that kind of, you know, people sitting and and the chairs tilted in various directions and stuff like that. It's very complicated and terrible. Yeah. Uh, everyone who uh, ever wants to be an artist, look at this. Look at this panel. Yes. Bottom of page two. Then you will put your pencil away and become a coal miner. All right. And if so, then maybe you shouldn't have been an artist. Uh, and uh, the captain, thinking that this was a sneeze, this yelling this Chang was a sneeze, a lot of people will mistake the word Chang for various things in this mm-hmm. story. Yeah. This is the start of that. Uh, he's uh, scolding him for sneezing so aggressively. Uh, but uh, Tintin's saying he didn't sneeze. He just had a, a terrible nightmare about Chang. You remember Chang, the boy I made friends with in China? I saw him, and it was ghastly. He was lying there hurt, half buried in the snow. He was holding out his hand, calling to me, help, Tintin, help. It was terribly real and uh, very upsetting to Tintin. And, well, the captain says, it seems like you're tired. You go you go to bed. That's a good place for nightmares. You go, you get out of here. <laughs> and so off uh, Tintin goes, and we join them the next morning. Well, just, just before you say, off he goes, uh, looking kind of uh, 
self-aware, and everyone is frowning at him and scowling yeah, in the room. Yeah, giving him. And also going like, isn't that the kid who uh, landed on the moon? Yeah, I think that's the moon what kid. What a jerk. What is he yelling yeah, Chan for? Yeah, moon kid. Anyway, <laughs> next morning, uh, the captain's uh, out having uh, his breakfast. And uh, well, no dreams, says Tintin. You know, everything's fine. Not much sleep, though. He was haunted by the picture of Chang lying in the snow. And uh, dismiss, dismiss, says the captain. Dismiss, dismiss. You know, he's r- rubbish. Yeah. Uh, you know, dreams go by opposites, so they say. So don't uh, think about it. And uh, coincidentally, here's a letter from Hong Kong for you. I'll throw it over to you. Sorry, I was taking a drink. Um, well, f- feel free. <laughs> Very Haddock-like of you. He gets a letter from Hong Kong. Let me just switch books because I am in my French book and I have a hard time keeping up with all the... Uh... So, yes, he gets a letter from Hong Kong. And so we see uh, the letter that it's been uh, redirected from Marlin's... Uh, actually, from Marlin Spike to to uh, the Hotel Dose... De... Oh, actually, it went to his, his original apartment on 26 Labrador Road. Okay. And then it was redirected from there to Marlin Spike Hall. Mm-hmm. And then from Marlin Spike Hall to Hotel de Semey in Vargas. So then... I wonder if people ever wrote to Tintin with the, with the addresses that we see here. Uh, that'd be great to write to him. <laughs> I'm just curious if people did. It seems like the kind of thing that kids would do. You know, you publish the address of, the, of uh, where your character actually lives. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a real place... I mean, Beltran's a real place. There's no Marlin Spike. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't really go much farther than the post office... But uh, in Belgium, I mean, it could theoretically, I don't think there is a Labrador Road, but theoretically, there could be a pretend Labrador Road. Why not? Why not? So the letter turns out to be from Chang. Coincidences are piling up here. (gasps) What are the chances? It's a letter from Chang. It turns out that Chang is, uh, so he says, yesterday evening I dreamt about him, and this morning I got a letter from him. Extraordinary, isn't it? It's almost as if we were talking about General Alcazar. (laughs) He bumped into him on the same corner. It turns out that uh, the brother of his most venerable adoptive father, because I didn't know that Mr. Wang Chang, he had a brother, the brother of my most vener- venerable adopted father is living in London, where he has an antique shop. And so Chang is going out to visit him. And so while well, on his way, he's going to visit uh, Tintin. Very nice. He's so happy. He dances with Snowy. He dances with Snowy. He dances with Calculus. Who, uh, who uh, thinks uh, when Tintin says he's going to see Chang again, he thinks he's saying champagne at this hour? Yes. And then, he, of course, he's very upset with Captain Haddock for allowing Tintin to have uh, champagne at, this, at that time of the morning as well. And then, and then of course, Haddock, doesn't, instead of looking mad for a change, he just looks surprised. What? You're getting mad at me for something you didn't hear? <laughs> this is shocking. Uh, Chang says, I'm flying to Calcutta, then on to Nepal. So he's going to uh, visit Kathmandu to pay his respects to his honorable cousin, who has many children, uh-oh, and take them presents. Uh-oh. And then Tintin realizes Nepal, Kathmandu, the plane that hit the mountain. Surely that was going to Kathmandu. They look in the paper to make sure. Nepal air, disaster, no survivors. They discover in the story that, and the terrible part of it, is that Chang was forced to wait overnight. He wasn't supposed to catch this DC, DC-3. He had to wait overnight. He caught it in the morning, and that plane crashed. And so for the first time... Since the Blue Lotus, we see Tintin cry. That's the last time we saw Tintin cry was when he left Chang standing on standing on shore as he got onto right? the liner. Yeah, it's yeah, he f- breaks down. He breaks down hard. He is very sad. And yes. uh, and so yeah, Tintin's saying, "Chang, my four friend, friend Chang." Calculus is saying, "That's what comes of drinking too much champagne." And the captain's not having any of this comedy relief at this point. <laughs> you and your your champagne. And so uh, very upset. Snowy's crying as well. But then. He says, no, it isn't true. I know Chang is not dead. Captain Haddock, of course, is not dead, but we just read in the paper. But Tintin is sure he's alive. He's yeah. sure that 
somehow that Chang, uh, yeah, Chang has spoken to him in a dream. And this reflects not only Hergé's interest, but Fanny's interest in ESP and extra, you know, those are, these are also commonly right. pop, popular topics in the late 50s, early 60s that, you know, were catching everyone's imagination, the idea that there was the possibility of uh, ESP. And we visited this kind of mystical thing in, in Tintin before. Mm-hmm. So. It's something that interested Hergé. Yeah. yeah. He, he enjoyed it as a, as a bit of a, a spice to the story. So uh, Tintin says they're leaving for Nepal, but Captain's not really having this. Uh, and Tintin is, uh, right. is, 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 he is, is not dead. He's Nepal, fair enough. Uh, and then there's a loud Chang. Well, let's turn the page, see what's going on. Turns out there's a dog named Chang, <laughs> uh, which yeah. uh, which the captain thinks is ridiculous, but uh, Tintin assures him, no, it's a Pekingese, it's quite reasonable. What's common. unfair, though, is that he's described as a common mongrel by the lady. He's a wire-haired fox terrier. He's not, he is a purebred. Mm. He's a purebred fox terrier. He might not be a Pekingese or whatever that dog she is. She doesn't know much about dogs. She thinks she does, but she, you know, mm-hmm. she got stuck with that Pekingese dog yeah. who seems to be a bit of a jerk. <laughs> so, you know, she's just putting on airs. I don't By the judge. way, let's also just say this much. Hmm? That dog went to the moon, lady. <laughs> That's a moon dog. <laughs> Hush. What's your dog done lately? That's right. Anyway, so uh, walking down the hallway and here again, Chang! But uh, this time, it is a person sneezing. A lot of things sound like Chang. Yes, they do. Uh, they do. She continues to sneeze. Uh, the captain says, well, if you were to find him alive, as Tintin packs, uh, why would you be able to, uh, if he were alive, how would you be able to find him? Uh, when Sherpas and experienced mountaineers have uh, have failed, but Tintin's not having it. He's, nope. He's we Tintin. know Tintin. Yeah, he's off. He's, he's off on an adventure. He's as stubborn as a mule. That's right. Yeah. You uh, cannot stop him from having an adventure, and you cannot give him money. That's right. Those are the things you cannot do. Yeah. So why don't we just, and, and, the captain's doing, I'm, well, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. I'm not coming. Uh, whoop, and two days later, he's there. <laughs> I just love that. I, yep. love, I love his, uh, you know, he just can't leave Tintin alone. He nope. knows that he can't. He you might say, like, nowadays, if you did that in a film, people would go, really, we're doing that bit? But it's the 50s. It was still fresh. It's fine. Uh, so, yeah, two days later. Well, it works with this go. character, too. Absolutely. You know. Uh what caught my eye on actually this page, this would be kind of weird, was I was looking at it and I looked at the plane and I went, oh my god, that isn't a DC-3. That's the first time in these stories that we haven't seen uh, them flying on, like a, as a as a airplane, as a, as a airliner. It wasn't a DC-3. What is, what is it? Uh, it's a Lockheed Constellation. Very good. So a few minutes later, uh, they're talking to uh, someone who works for the airline, uh, who is telling them the plane for Kathmandu, oh yes. Uh, calling it Patna, it leaves at uh, 2.35 this, this afternoon, but from the other airport, uh, Willingdon. Uh, the bus will take you there, unless you'd rather visit the city for a while, and uh, someone may have done some research and wants to show off what they uh, can draw. Sure. So let's do that. So around the city we go. That's right. Let's get Bob DeMoor something to do. Yep. So he can draw the, uh, he's able to draw the, what is it called? The Kutab Minar? I was hoping you would know. It's 238 t- feet high. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll do the next one, Dave, okay, to sure. be fair. And the Red yeah. Fort. The oh. Red Fort. There, I did oh, that okay. one. There we go. What is it called in uh, in French? Uh, Rouge Forte. <laughs> sure. What is it called in French? Oh, it's pretty great. Fort Rouge. Fort Rouge. Very nice. Yeah. So let's uh, go ahead three hours. And uh, <laughs> and uh, it looks like Tintin's forgetting the time being a bit of a tourist. Yeah. He's, uh, he wants to challenge Bob Demur. <laughs> that's right. So it's time to hop in a taxi. Unfortunately, uh, the road is being blocked uh, by a cow. 
yeah. and it's a sacred cow, so uh, the people will not move this cow. Yeah. Cabin's like, well, we're just going to have to step over it. It's nice that he's, you know, respecting the culture. Yeah. Uh, but sure. in the stepping over it, the cow stands up, and now the, the captain becomes a real cowboy. Yeah. As he's uh, taken down the street, uh, holding on for dear life. Uh, and uh, the cow f- uh, flips him into the back of a car, sending the driver up into the air. It's a nice little scene. Nice little scene. 1938 Cadillac, by the way. Nice. Uh, taxi driver uh, says, good afternoon. Where to, Sahib? Uh, oh, to the airport. Uh, but uh, not right away. I'm waiting for a friend. Tintin uh, runs up, catches up, and off they go. Uh, the driver saying, he's the best taxi in Delhi. Uh, nothing can stop me, but we see a tack in the road. This is not a joke I'm very fond of. What is the joke you see? Well, just the setting up, setting up uh, uh, a situation and then just easily solving it in the next panel. Was that by driving by the tag? Yeah, driving by the tag. You don't like that joke? No. Okay, we kind disagree of, kind of greatly plain, on kind that. Kind of playing with the audience. Uh, nope, I like that joke. Like That's it? one of my You're favorite okay jokes it? in the whole book. <laughs> right. Which is, here, here comes a thing. Oh, no. No, it's fine. Yeah, it's I kind like. of a cheat because you know it's kind of I got to set up a cliffhanger for for the end of this panel or and then this page. So you're a big fan of I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going. <laughs> Next panel, I'm going. Yeah, but you don't like tack on the road, not hurting anybody. Yeah, mm, we're very different people. <laughs> All right, driving down the road. <laughs> it's because uh, because I'm such a fan of Buster Keaton and he didn't like it. So all right, I'm an accolade. Very good. Uh, well, we don't need to hear about your religion. Uh, so um, uh, the captain's got something in his eye. And uh, Tintin's trying to see what uh, what it is, but can't see it. Uh, Captain's cap flies off. Tintin goes running for it. Uh, it's like, come on, we're going to miss the plane. Uh, looks like they're going to miss the plane. There's two stairwells, uh, stairways to get to the plane. But because the captain has uh, something in his eye, he goes up the wrong one. Oh, boy. Yeah, I appreciate that because I'm a busterist. Yeah, that's good. You know, he fell, he fell down for your sins. Do you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. I think I'm going to I'm going to defend the tack joke again right now. <laughs> I think the tack joke helps here because we've just seen him avoid some trouble. Yeah. And now we're not expecting trouble. Yeah. For, and then we get into trouble yeah. like immediately. It's it it pays off. You get a gag with a couple of Maybe it's fine here. I panels. think I think my objection, yeah. I think my Keaton's objection to it was he did a gag where he ate a banana, threw down the peel. Yeah. And then it comes around again and he runs past it and doesn't slip on it. <laughs> And, okay, that's making me laugh already. And, but then he thumbs his nose at the audience as if to say, you thought I was going to slip on it and I didn't. Oh, well, then you got to run into something else. Yeah, exactly. That's but he, but he didn't. No, but that's didn't. the problem. So, yeah, that was see, the problem. Yeah. We made the, we I think fixed right. it, though, here. I think you're right. All right, so we see... The I'm, gonna, ca- I'm on your side now. All right, Tintin and the captain did make it onto the plane. I'm on Team Ian. But now the captain is quite bandaged up. Yeah. And uh, the uh, stewardess, which is what they called them back then, uh, saying, uh, when I'm finished with the bandages, I'll, I'll see what's in your eye. I believe eye. they called them a flight nurse. Oh, okay. I know, I'm just joking. Sure. Just joking. They would be called a sky wench. Yes. It was a very different time. That's right. So, uh, next morning, they're arriving in Kathmandu. And we get a little bit of business with uh, the airport manager, which I like, which is he's uh, fooling around. This is something you would not normally get in a comic. And I, li- I like this, yeah. where he's fooling around with a little rubber band on his hand yeah, yeah. And, while giving a lot of information, and the captain is just getting annoyed by mm-hmm. that stupid rubber band yeah. to the point where it finally snaps, uh, you know, and he's uh, and hits him in the nose, and the captain gets a good laugh out of that. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, having said that, Jacques Martin didn't have much of a hand in the jokes and stuff in this story. I feel like this is very much a martin joke so i could be wrong but it feels like it to me and if you're asking like how fast does the captain heal uh one day he goes from having to have all those bandages on his face to no bandages needed so yeah. he heals very quickly and i just want to point out uh that uh the airplane returns to the dc3 
So the, this, the first time we see them on the Lucky Constellation, they're all like, wow, different kind of plane. Oh, back to the DC-3. So, but what the guy is saying, actually, let's get to the information. Oh, sure. You know, uh, you know, uh, their friends. Basically, of... basically, it's a giant exposition dump for stuff that we already know. Yeah. All right. That's fair enough. Is there any new information that's going along here? Basically, no, I don't think so. We, we can't help. Yeah, we can't help. We've already gone up the mountain. We didn't find anything. But I'll put you in touch with Sherpas if you yeah. want to. Uh, who made up the rescue party? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Tintin's on board with that. Uh, once again, Captain. I don't think he's alive. Tintin. He's alive. That's right. And, uh, and, you know, listen, you know, he's saying, look, he's alive. He's alive. Uh, all that because he had a dream. I dreamt about Columbus last night, but that doesn't bring him to life, does it? I wonder what his dream about Columbus was. Uh, I don't behave like a sleepwalker roaming around in a daze with my eyes shut. Okay, comedically, what happens next? <laughs> he wasn't looking where he was going. He, he got smacked in the, smacked in the face by yep. a guy carrying some fruit. Yes. And uh, gives him a good shouting. Uh, then walks into another guy who's carrying a big uh, uh, parcel on his back. Uh, gives him the old captain yelling uh, routine. And gets it back in his yeah, face. Yeah, gets it back. Yes, the guy yells at him in Hindi. He says, uh, don't you see what's in front of you? So that's Oh, nice. So it's actually, it's yeah. not just made him up. Yeah, no, good. it's actual. I like that Tintin goes, what's the matter, captain? Met your match at last? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And the yeah. funny thing would be if he then walks up to, you know, a version of Tintin in this uh, in this world now, too, and they all, ah, we're going off to have our adventures. <laughs> so uh, they go to ask uh, some, some men on the street, you know, uh, you know, perhaps they know the shop kept by Chang's relation. So uh, while they talk about that, the captain notices fruit spread out to dry in the sun that smells it, very good. It does look very tempting. Yeah. And so uh, he asks, like, oh, is it good to eat? Oh, yes, very good to eat. And then his mouth basically catches on fire. <laughs> and it's a great uh, word balloon as well, because it, the word balloon is on fire. Mm -hmm. And it says fire. Yeah, it's nice, because uh, Tintin's getting information. He's getting uh, the Chinese shop where it is. Uh, and, and, you know, we're breaking up with some good comedy. And yep. uh, the captain sticks his face in a whole uh, above-ground well, it looks like. Yes, it's a very full well. <laughs> Yeah. That seems unlikely that they would be that full, but okay. Turns out it was a red pimento, Captain. Uh, a pepper. I don't know if a red pimento would be that hot, but maybe it was. Maybe to European tastes of the 1950s, mm -hmm. uh, garlic was hot. That's true. Mm -hmm. You know, in our modern ghost pepper times. Yes. The, nowadays, we, we burn out our esophagus. The, you know, we're, we're a different uh, generation. True. All right, let's go a few minutes later. And we're at the uh, temple. Uh, that was uh, that was mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. which is very very beautiful. Another nice Bob Demore drawing, right? Uh, they meet uh, Cheng Li Kin, uh, who uh, you know knows they're looking for him, uh, and uh, you know he was told by someone who they asked, you know, oh yeah, they're looking for you, all right. So he says, uh, please do me the inexpressible honor of taking a humble cup of tea in my miserable house, uh, please. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, all right. They're all on board with that. Oh, when you sell it like that. <laughs> And uh, there you go. And so um, they're, uh, they're surprised to find out Chang's there. In both cases, uh, uh, somehow the, the French is less, is less offensive in how, it's, how the Chinese, is the language, his way of yeah. speaking is portrayed. It's, although in that version, he laughs. Rather than saying, yes, please, he, he laughs every, every word balloon. Mm. So I don't know which is worse. Is it, it is the broken English, you know, Chinese thing. So It's less go. broken in the French version, as far as I can tell. And, uh, but it's just the weird laugh that's kind of strange. But uh, Now, we've been faked out by things that uh, sound like Chang. Now we're getting faked out by a fake Chang. Yeah. Uh, this is Chang uh, Lin Yi, but nope. Uh, their friend is called Chang Chon Chen. 
Oh, you speak of our late lamented adopted uh, adoptive nephew. And uh, as they say, like he's dead in an airplane crash. But Tintin says, nope, I, I, I believe he's not dead. And they're asking for a Sherpa. Uh, and uh, it's like, okay, well, let's go find a Sherpa. So they do. But nope, no dice with a Sherpa. He's, uh, <laughs> nope, doesn't want to risk three lives, your life, the life of the other, uh, and, uh, and his life to look for a dead man. Which is all very reasonable. Tintin, you know, yeah, like, being, I had a dream. He's being the unreasonable one. Yeah, it's right not now like they story. haven't searched for, for these folks yeah. before. It's been proven. Everyone's everyone's dead. Uh, and the captain's trying to convince Tintin again, you know, uh, this all makes this all makes sense. Uh, and Tintin goes, You're right, no, I understand. I'm gonna go alone. <laughs> well, the captain's had enough of this and yeah. storms off and walks again into that version of the captain. That guy again yeah. uh, gets yelled at. Who yells at him? He says, what? You again? That's right. And That's what cap- he says. That's what it says. And I like that the captain's like, please, please watch your language. I didn't shout at you, did I? <laughs> he can give it, but he can't take it. Yes. Okay. I think, we- well, he can take it, but. He has to take it, but he doesn't yeah. like to. He doesn't it. like it taking it. Oh, no, he doesn't like being on the receiving end. Nope. Not well, at all. there you are. So, uh, so Tintin is ra- is uh, getting everything together. F- uh, three days later, yeah, uh, taps on the captain's door and sees the captain is packing. Of course, the captain packing uh, means- entirely yeah, a, a knapsack full of bottles. But you got to give him this and tobacco that he's carrying it himself. True. He, you know, he's the one who's taking the load of all these bottles. Right. I guess he knows that over the time his load will lighten. Unlike everyone else's, which will oh, always be the good, same. That is a good point. Yeah, yeah, he'll be just like just hopping down the hill, <laughs> and uh, you know, do you imagine for a moment that I'd let a young whippersnapper like you go off alone? Not in your life. I suppose you think Captain Haddock has got tomato juice in his veins, eh? <laughs> you know, and so yeah, he's on board. He's going to do it. And uh, then uh, there is a knock at the door. A yep. little rat a tat tat. And uh, I will throw it over to you again. So it's the uh, character that uh, he kept bumping into who yelled at him. But this time, you're the rogue who knocks me out in every corner. And, you know, what does he want? Well, it turns out that uh, Sherpa Tharki sent him. Uh-huh. And so uh, everything's ready to go. This guy's going to be a porter for their journey. And so there you go. So Captain Haddock, it turns out, went to Tharki and convinced him to also come on this uh, possibly, uh, what do we call it, hapless yeah. journey. Good for the, you know, what a good friend the captain is. The captain is. is a good friend. Even if he constantly complains about what a good friend he is, yeah. he's still a good friend. Uh, so the captain says, not so fast. He's only agreed to take us as far as the wreck of the aircraft. No farther. But once you're up there, you'll realize there isn't the remotest chance of finding anyone alive. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Yeah, but they fixed up everything, closed food, equipment, and, uh, you know, so off they go. An hour later, we see them walking, and the captain's uh, taking the lead. Uh, he's doing almost what you said before a Boy Scout does, which is uh, whistle. Yes. A Boy Scout smiles and whistles. And that's what he's doing. Uh, but Only then he soon... He's <laughs> like in the middle of the pack. Yep. And then bragging. Finds himself the at the end. But he's got a little bit of spinach in his... A uh, little bit of Captain Spinach in his knapsack. Takes out a bottle of whiskey. Gulps it down. Throws it... Man, what a litter bug, by the way. I guess there's no recycling then. Throws it over his shoulder onto the path of this beautiful nature and sings the Grand Old Duke of York. He had 10,000 men and that wonderful pom-pom that they make. Uh, it's strange but or interesting, but in the, the French version, it's, he sings a different song. He sings a song called Le Regiment de Sombre et Muse. Mm-hmm. And he sings all these proud children of Gaul marched without respite or ease. That's what he's singing. 
And then we go, uh, we see that uh, whiskey giveth, but whiskey taketh. So uh, you burn out fast, and he's basically sleepwalking as he's walking. Yeah. And then yeah. we almost get into a Windsor McKay uh, type dream That's sequence. That's true, yeah. It does have that feel to it, doesn't it? Now, we've seen uh, this kind of surreal uh, dreamscape the captain's had before, right? Well, we've like, seen Tintin have it in, oh, it in Prisoners Tintin of the Sun. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, but it's the first time we've seen uh, the captain have it. And it's, yeah, it's a series of three dreamlike panels. Uh, with him in calculus, uh, calculus saying that he's lost his umbrella. Oh, there we go from yeah. the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Captain has many umbrellas and a giant bottle tied to his back. Yes. And then, uh, and then the uh, <laughs> calculus is uh, saying um, he's got a red pimento while holding up a yellow umbrella. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they're on a giant check chessboard. Uh, it looks like Calculus is in a diaper, yep. uh, smacking the captain, who's dressed as a schoolboy on the head, uh, yelling checkmate, uh, while there is the cow that he was riding, who is now taking the place of a knight he's, on the chessboard uh, in the okay. background. Yeah, uh, He's dressed like the uh, the fellow who who uh, Haddock kept bumping into, who yelled at Haddock. That's what uh, Calculus is Oh, is that right? Yeah, he's wearing the green vest. And, oh, and then there the, we uh, go then. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice three scenes. <laughs> they're great. They're it's great, great and it's great that it ends with him on the ground with his legs splayed out, holding his head from bumping into a tree. Yes, it's just a nice transition there. I think. Well, let's go to the evening uh, where uh, Haddock is complaining, sleeping in a tent. You know, saying, "Oh, my poor feet. I expect they'll be better by morning." Well, good night, good night, everybody, good night. And then, uh, oh my gosh, it's uh, singing. It yes. sounds like Faust. It sounds like the jewel song from Faust. Yeah. Uh, the captain's had enough of this, goes to another tent and tells him to shut that noise up. <laughs> Fiori. Fiori it, music. It is a nice little cameo for, for Castafiori, though, yeah. to have that in there. She must be doing all right for herself. That song plays Apparently, a lot of places. A lot of places, yeah. And so back uh, the captain goes and... Uh, trips and over trips, the tent wire. That's or the right. Tent cable. Yeah. Because, you know, comedy relief. So anyway, next morning, uh, off they go, and with Haddock leading the rest of the field, yeah. uh, they get to a river... And uh, I like that he knows what he is by this point. Yes. That he's the comedy relief. Yeah. Saying, all right, with my usual good fortune, this should end with a loud splash. <laughs> but i got to give him the pleasure. There we go. And we go to Tintin and the, and the Sherpas. And we hear a loud splash. Okay. Let's turn the page, see what's up. Uh, he's just chucking stones in the river. He's fine. What a trickster. Yeah, but he's getting a little cocky. Let's yes. see what happens. You know? And uh, then, yes, Tintin tells him, you know, Good job, Captain. Only you've crossed too early. We have to cross up. So, and then the Captain has to make his way back. What's good is is Snowy's absolute pleasure in uh, his trouble. Is saying, "Will he fall? Will he? Won't he? Will he?" And then, he, and then, oh, and then, of course, Tintin's reaction. Uh, here he says, "Mon Dieu!" I don't know. He says in the English version. Well done, Captain. That's the safe. Oh, what do you mean? Well, great snakes. Oh, great snakes. Of course, he has. And then he says, "He will fall." And then we see the Captain slightly. And then, oh, I just like that. Uh, Snowy just says, well, there's no point watching now. Yep. Well, Snowy used to be comedy relief. He is a good one now, so, you know, <laughs> and, no sympathy. And then we, we see uh, Tin Tin, or, sorry, Captain Haddock crawling on his hands and knees along these branches to get back across. Saying just bridge. a bark or two and you can change my name to Snowy. If you look in, uh, t- in t- if you look in Erge's, everyone take a drink, please. If you look in Erge's uh, picture files, there's actually a picture of a bridge made like that, just a, a branches uh, laid across the stream, yeah. I do not care for that. Uh, so they continue to climb. Uh, a very thirsty Snowy uh, finds a little puddle of water. Thinks it tastes a little well, odd. The good thing about that bridge is if you fall in, you know who to blame. Yeah, Hergé for drawing. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, we get a nice little sequence uh, as he realizes what the liquid is. Yes. It's whiskey. Uh, whereas the angel Snowy is, uh, stay away from the demon alcohol. But then uh, his demon self is like, ah, it feels good, right? Huh? No, just drink it. Drink some more of it. Uh, and uh, as he sees, like, Haddock's uh, you know, knapsack uh, dripping, and he goes behind him and uh, drinking the whiskey as it falls. What's interesting is that um, we never really saw this before in the stories, but it, the first time it was Captain Haddock in the Red Sea Sharks in the last story, he's tempted to drink the Hague whiskey yes. until it falls off the table and breaks. And he has the argument between his devil and angel self, and now we have a similar uh, setup here with Snowy. And what's interesting is it doesn't happen just once in the story, but twice. Yeah, so and both times he gives in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Snowy will give in to temptation. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's a dog. Understood. Uh, and uh, the Sherpa's laughing at the drunk dog, uh, who like smacks his head into a rock. Yeah. Uh, and is so drunk that he actually falls off a off a cliff. Oh, right into a stream. Terrifying. Uh, uh, luckily, uh, Tintin runs, uh, goes across one of those bridges, if not that same bridge. Yeah. Uh, grabbing Snowy, and uh, then it's revealed Snowy was drunk, and and Tintin has no patience at all for Snowy on the sauce. No. If there's one thing that makes two things make him mad, one offer him money, yeah. Tintin hates it, yeah. and two if his dog gets drunk, sure, so angry, <laughs> you know, saying if if that Very ever happens again, I shan't ra- risk my neck saving you. Mm-hmm. Humph. <laughs> uh, somehow I don't believe him. So, uh, so it's several, I guess, uh, a long walk continues. Uh, they come across uh, Chorton, which is a uh, a place for a uh, burial place. They bur- would bury the ashes of the monks oh, okay. in these uh, decorative. Uh, I guess they're kind of what would you call them? Uh, what do you call where you put ashes in an urn? Uh, yeah, an urn. Yep. And so they put it in a shrine or some sort. But the thing was, is that they were bad luck to cross. You only could cross on the right. You couldn't cross on the left of a. Oh, sorry. If you cross on the right of a turn, it's bad luck, right? Is that what it is? Uh, it, it brings you bad luck if you pass on the right. Yeah, you have to pass on the, the left. left. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. And so I like him. Like, am I breaking the highway code? Yeah, it's a one-way yes. street. <laughs> that's a real. That's a real grandpa thing to say. He said, uh, "Other cultures, meh." That's <laughs> well, he did it. He crossed. The, he he crossed in it. That's but then right. he stumbled over a rock, goes flying down the hill, and uh, Tin is yelling to stop, stop your. And then he's trying. He asks, "I wonder how I can do it." And then they're yelling at him as he's running down the hill towards another chort, and they're yelling, "Pass on the left, Sahib! Pass on the left!" And he's saying to himself, pass on the left, pass on the left, if only I could. And then he runs straight into it, and then uh, the top of the chorten falls off and smashes his knapsack full of whiskey. And Bob DeMoore actually talked to Erge about this and said he thought it was kind of offensive and thought maybe they shouldn't have it in there. But yeah, Erge said, I don't know. you know what, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good gag. <laughs> there you go then. It's uh, a good gag. We can have some fun with the ashes of their ancestors. Sure. Uh, the next morning, uh, they're walking some more, and they uh, you, and uh, Tintin goes, "Oh, you think it would be? We're in an alpine forest." Yeah, you know. Uh, and uh, Captain's saying, "Oh, I wouldn't mind uh, rhododendrons like these at Marlin Spike." <laughs> oh, good. He cares about his garden. Yeah. He likes Marlin Spike. I'm glad he lives there. Mm-hmm. So they keep walking through the forest, and then a uh, splish, something falls, gooey and uh, yeah. wet. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it's some sort of rotten uh, fruit dropped from the tree. Uh, Tintin looks up, and something happens that doesn't often happen with Tintin. He's comedy. It happens now. enough. It happens enough. All right. Uh, not as often as everyone else. It gets no, a little of the rotten true. fruit in the face. Yeah. It's kind of like the plum tree at my house. Right now, the, if you don't pick the plums right away when you go to grab one, a few will come down on top of you. <laughs> <Is that right? laughs> Aren't so nice. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a weird thing with fruit. You don't tend to it, and it'll explode or go bad or yeah, you really be, hurt you. Yeah, you got to be up there every day. Yeah. So the following night, uh, they're going to camp, uh, and uh, the captain mentions that they've reached the snow. Uh, then uh, they say, look, uh, across there, Tibet, the air, airplane uh, wreck is there. Tomorrow we arrive, but for now we eat. And uh, it says, uh, Tampa, Tampa is ready. And uh, the captain asks, well, what's this stuff made of? It's a uh, cooked barley meal with tea and butter. Yeah, so as we said, uh, in part of his reading, when he's reading the Alexandra, uh, was it David Neal was her name? Yeah. Um, she had these this great detail of the life of the of the daily life, not just of the geography and stuff like that, or conquering the mountains. She also wrote about the daily life of the of people around the the mountains and, and the monasteries. And that was a little tidbit that he incorporated into the it's story. It's a nice little grounding bit of uh, business because you can sort of uh, f- figure out what that would taste like. Yeah. You know what barley tastes like. You yeah. know what butter tastes like. Sure. So you're now sort of tasting what they're tasting. Uh, and then they hear a uh, which is <laughs> the abominable snowman. Yeah. Uh, Captain's not buying this. No, he not, does not believe in the, the abominable snowman. Not for a second. He's like you. He is the doubting Thomas of this of the group. That's right. Uh, and uh, they describe what the Yeti is like. He's very big, uh, strong. He kills yaks with his fist. Uh, hmm? The Yeti's very bad. He uh, eats eyes and hands of the men he kills. Yes, of course he does. We're going to fill up on eyes he has before a, you eat He has a hands? terrible press agent. That's a problem for the Yeti. And then we hear the ha-ha again. Ah, Captain's not buying it. Yeah. You know, uh, but he says, here's something real enough, a bottle of whiskey, which uh, seems to be the sole survivor. Uh, <laughs> but one of the uh, one of the fellows says, oh, you shouldn't drink. Why not? It's against your pr- principles? No. Nope. If the Yeti smells alcohol, he comes. He likes alcohol. Uh, one day near uh, Sadoa, he uh, he finds uh, Chang and he drinks it. What? Drinking Chang? What on earth are you babbling about? Chang, it's our drink. It's a very strong beer. Uh, the Yeti uh, took the Chang, uh, got drunk, uh, gets went to sleep. The men from the village tied him up, but the Yeti's very strong uh, when he's uh, no longer asleep. So, yeah, they, uh, who likes the sauce? The Yeti. Which makes <laughs> you sort of feel like at this point, oh, the Yeti isn't real. It's obviously like uh, some guy because he likes uh, beer. Yeah. Yeti wouldn't drink beer. Yeah. You'd almost think he was the captain's alter ego if we hadn't already seen him meet that. Uh, That's right. The meet the, the uh, carrier. That's one thing you never hear about Bigfoot. Oh, really? He really likes a nice cold uh, glass of beer. Mm-hmm. No. Not all. Sure you do. You haven't seen the Kokanee commercials, obviously. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Fair enough. I actually know the person who played the Bigfoot in that. <laughs> anyway, very local reference there. And also only a good local reference in the 90s. <laughs> Moving on. So the captain, uh, you know, uh, goes uh, goes to bed after after accidentally uh, getting a little uh, of the barley on his face. Uh, goes off to bed and uh, says, you know, uh, I'm off to bed. And it'll take more than an abominable snowman to keep me awake, I can tell you. And we hear a big yow, <laughs> and the captain's beard is caught in the zipper. Yes, that's great. Well, we never really did determine if he sleeps with his beard out or uh, under. He, he turns sideways. But you turn sideways, I guess you get your beard in there. So uh, Tintin helps uh, pulling uh, a big chunk of the beard out. It looks like. Yeah, I know. They look like the fact that there's all this uh, beard, little bits of beard flying. Poor Captain's beard. Oh, poor Captain, indeed. So let's go to daybreak. And again, I'll throw it over to you. And morning comes and he decides, oh, wait a second. As he's packing, he goes, oh, my whiskey bottle. So he goes over to get, get that. And it is gone. So everyone... And Snowy is gurring because he smells something's up. Yeah. Or also, maybe he's upset that the whiskey's gone. 
Had to. And so they, they ask everybody, nope, 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 not at all, nope, nope, not any, nope, nope, how about you, nope, nope, nope. And they said, maybe it was the Yeti. Yeah, it was the Yeti, right. I expect he plays bagpipes too. <laughs> but anyway, so he's, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's not very convinced of, uh, what's going on. So his whiskey's gone, they continue on up the mountain. And I, I just like the, I like the little detail here. They're all wearing sunglasses because now they've gone into the snow, mm-hmm. and of course it would be very very uh, bright. So they need to wear sunglasses, otherwise they'll get snow blind. And they find the footprints of the bottle of snow. And basically, this is the cover shot that we're yep. looking at here, just from a slightly different angle. They see these giant footprints in the snow. Captain thinks this is nonsense. Follows them. Uh, spots uh, his whiskey bottle. Very happy <laughs> and horrified to find out. It's empty. Empty. And then we get one of the greatest swearing things where he says, M-R-K-R-P-X-Z-K-R-M-T-R-F-R-Z, exclamation mark, which I can only uh, translate as, Yep. My whiskey, you crow magnon, you marmaluke, vampire, dipsomaniac, body snatcher, odd tote, unclate, macrocephalic baboon, I don't know the next one, Silorexia, cannibal, uh, Diplodocus, filibuster, megalomaniac, and then uh, you know threatens them like, "Come on out, you old alcoholic!" Unless you're too scared. And the yelling uh, causes an avalanche. Yeah. He yells some more, kleptomaniac, and gets snow in the face. <laughs> I think this is the scene that my niece liked the best. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So yelling, ectoplasm. They lead the captain down the hill, and they discover that the porters have left. Yeah. The mere threat of a drunken Yeti is enough to send them packing. Sure. Or unpacking, in this case. Yeah, they're they're, no longer packing. They're not wrong. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we hear the echo of their words. And uh, it, Tintin says, we must go on. It's like, no, it's impossible. We can't carry the porter's loads. But Tintin says, all right, we'll each carry an extra load. Everything that isn't absolutely essential can be dumped here. Uh, Tharky, we've got to save Chang. And so they do. Now, you got to realize, though, by this point, they've drank all the whiskey. Yeah. The whiskey's gone. Whiskey. So the well, captain, they broke all the whiskey. Well, they broke all the whiskey. Yeah. Uh, the but it's all, it. it's all gone. So the captain no longer has to carry anything. He's mm-hmm. just got tobacco in his bag. Yeah. He's fine. So yeah. this isn't the worst thing in the world. So, it truly uh, is not. Up they go and they find the wreckage. Yeah. Very well drawn, actually. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a great reference photo that Hergé had for it. So they're able to draw. The reference photo was of a DC-6, but it, I guess they're pretty similar, so it's not too hard to change. So they're checking everything there. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and as I usually say about... Sorry, I just want to say, as I usually say about Roger Leloup, who I'm certain drew this, is that... He understood the inner workings of the airplane as well, so you know it's easy to draw a smashed up out, out the out the external parts of an airplane. What's hard is to have the struts and the the gears and everything else uh, strewn about because I have no idea what that looks like, and most of the rest of us don't either. You know, so it's a it's a good uh, it's a good drawing. So uh, Tintin finds a teddy bear. Uh, he says it could have been Chang's a present for his cousins, which chokes up the captain uh, to <laughs> blow his nose. Uh, then it looks like Snowy's found something to eat, a full chicken. Roast yeah. chicken, very happy about that, but it's frozen solid, so no <laughs> dice there, Snowy. Poor Snowy. Yeah, a little tear. Now he cries. Bit, it's yeah. just his turn to cry. Well, Snowy cried earlier with the, with the Chang thing, too. Uh, so they said we're going to camp here tonight, and tomorrow they'll return to the valley. But uh, Tintin decides he's going to have a little look uh, at the rock face, and he finds a mouth of a cave. Yeah, and a beautiful drawing of him looking in the cave. And I just love how the the uh, the painting around the color work of with the white and the uh, way the color 
Oh, so good. Yeah. So uh, Tintin goes in the first cave he's been in since the cave on the moon. Um, and yeah. l- looking around, uh, uh, saying to Snowy, wait a minute while our eyes get accustomed to the dim light, which is true. It'd be very bright outside. It'd be very dark yep. inside. So that, that makes sense. Yep. But Snowy's growling. He's hearing something. And, uh, and it's, oh, it's just the wind, uh, you know. And, but then it uh, looks like they find something on a, a flat rock. It's Chang. It's uh, not Chang the person. It's yeah. uh, the word Chang is written there. Yeah. His name in Chinese, and he's carved it in uh, English as well. Yes, that's right. So uh, Very helpful. Yeah, so uh, Tintin uh, shouts for Chang, uh, but in doing so makes ice fall and landing on Snowy. It was off panel. Uh, he goes outside, sees it's now really snowing very, very hard, and uh, goes off to wander through the snow. Two hours later, a uh, very worried captain is sitting inside of the uh, wreckage, uh, smoking his pipe, and is is told uh, that there's still nothing. We go back to Tintin, uh, who is uh, you know walking through the snow. He's completely lost his bearings. He's shouting, "Koi!" Uh, it's no good, not a sound. The noise of the wind's drowning my voice. I think he's yelling, "Kui!" Which is just a way to yell, "Kui!" Yeah, sure. Uh, well, only one thing to do: go on. Uh, almost steps in a crevasse. You know, oh, that was a near thing. He says. And then he uh, seems to spot the captain in the distance, saying, Ahoy! Ahoy, captain! He can't hear him. They're going after him. Captain! Oh, this is awful, captain! And then he falls in a crevasse. And uh, he's now in that hole. Snowy is being covered with snow and going, Wow, wow, <laughs> Now, normally, at this point in time, yeah. uh, we would, uh, Hergé would then uh, have something happen to him and we would stop doing this story for a number of years. <laughs> That's right. This is, this is very yeah. similar to other situations we've That's been true. in with Tintin. That's true. This does not bode well. No, it's probably where he went to see the psychiatrist. Uh, so uh, we come cut back to the inside of the airplane. Haddock and, and uh, Tharkia are still waiting for Tintin to come. They hear the uh, howl of, of Snowy. but So they go outside. They follow the howl out into the snow. And there they see a poor frozen Snowy, mostly buried in the snow except for his muzzle. The captain digs him out, holds him in his arms to warm him up. And they realize that Tintin has fallen down into the crevasse. Right. must be hard to find an all-white dog in the snow. If you were going uh, with Snowy, I would say put a little jacket on Snowy. Not just for warmth, mm-hmm. but just so you can see the guy. Sure. Easy to draw. Vanishes. The, uh, so Tharky decides that he's going to uh, get lowered down into the cave. So, so Haddock, they've, uh, they've basically hammered a climbing pick into the, down into the snow and... And use that as a way to break, as a break for the rope. Yeah. And so uh, Haddock is holding onto the rope, as it, and then it winds around this ice pick, and then down into the into the crevasse as Tharky is lowered down. Then the captain hears someone calling for him. He turns and looks. It's Tintin. He lets go of the rope. Tintin, hooray! And then Tintin says, "Hooray! <laughs> hooray!" Says, hooray, it's Tintin. He lets go of the rope and Tintin says, Captain, the rope, the rope. <laughs> Tharky, the other guy. And they grab it and there's poor Tharky hanging, dangling near the bottom of the crevasse with uh, some surprise lines around his, his head. Like, woo, that was close. Yeah. Uh, Tintin explains a little later uh, that he bounced down the sides. Luckily, they were smooth. Then he hit his head and was knocked unconscious. Of course he was. He's Tintin. He gets. should have said it was kind of like falling on the moon. <laughs> he should have. Uh, when he came to, he crawled along the bottom of the crevasse. 
It sloped upwards after a few acrobatics. Oh, we don't get to see those. I managed to get out, and then we saw him a few uh, a few dozen yards away. But then asks, hey, when I saw you earlier, why didn't you uh, react to me? And it's like, but I never left the plane. Oh, then it was you, Tharky. No, no, it wasn't me. I haven't moved away from the airplane. But then who was it? And uh, Tharky says, well, you saw the Yeti. That's who it was, no doubt. Uh, we go uh, down to the very quickly to the valley. Great danger for us here. Besides, no one is alive up here. So uh, Tintin says, like, in a nice cave, I discovered a stone on, on which Chang had carved his name. It absolutely proves that he survived the crash. I couldn't find anything more without a light. But uh, as soon as we've uh, taken care of Snowy, I suggest we all go and explore the cave. Okay, well, Chang's name, that all makes some sense. So let's go, and we're at daybreak. Yes. So I'll, they start up the mountain, the three of them walking up, looking. Now they have to start looking for the cave because, of course, it snowed overnight, and the snowdrifts have blown up against the side of the mountain and have covered it along the side. So they're poking their ice picks as they go. The captain decides that this is a waste of time. He's just going to sit down. He goes to sit down and falls backwards into the cave through the snow, and he's very proud of himself for finding the cave. <laughs> So they find the the uh, rock with Chang's name on it. All right, story checks out. I don't like the kind of stories where they wouldn't find the rock. I always hate that one. It's like, oh, I found yeah. evidence. Well, let's yeah. go. There's no evidence. We yeah. don't believe you. Yeah. Oh, quit delaying. Move on. So good for them for actually seeing yeah, it. Yeah, it's kind of silly. Uh, then Snowy brings a bone. That's kind of disturbing. Yeah, after hearing that, like, probably the Yeti uh, uh, killed him and ate him up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, oh, no. Here's Snowy with a bone, but... It, it's uh, it's the bone of an animal. Yes. All right, that's fine. Then they find uh, 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 the bones of birds and small rodents. Hmm. Yeah, and we find out what those really are later on and what happened. Ugh, it's gross. Anyway, uh, but Snowy says, uh, this uh, old Yeti keeps a well-stocked larder. <laughs> or, or bones. Well, yes. Most of us wouldn't enjoy it as much as Snowy does. So, uh... Uh, once again, uh, but the Yeti uh, perhaps ate Chang somewhere else. You know what? You're not helping. Men <laughs> were like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. probably ate your friend in another place. Is this bugging you, me saying this? Yeah. Is this going to affect my getting tipped at the end of this uh, journey? Well, uh, the tip's included in the charge, so. Yeah, so it's Tintin's Less like, incentive to be, to be polite. Tintin's getting sick of this Yeti business. And uh, and the captain just wishes he'd see him. You know, great flat-footed grizzly bear. I'd give him Yeti. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Come out, big head, he says. That's right. So uh, they keep going wandering. Uh, what, and what I like in the next sequence is, the, is that it's the same. It uh, All three panels kind of, uh, it's a panorama shot of the mountains, but it's still broken into three panels. Mm -hmm. So you get a sense of the scope of where they are. And then, because they're talking about the fact that even if Chang is alive, where would we search for him? Over there, like this way or that way, and so we get this sense of how big this area is. That that uh, you know where Chang could be. It's a you know it's pretty hard. Even Tintin has to admit defeat, despite and, his optimism. And the next morning, you know, uh, the captain says, "We've done everything huma humanly possible. Come on now." And Tintin, crying, says goodbye, Chang. Goodbye. Yeah. And that's the end of the story. That's right. That was the end of the book. Very the sad and uh, anti-climate. Wait. Uh, uh, Tintin spots something. It's something on the mountain. It's a bit of a rag. No, 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 it's a scarf. It's something yellow. A yellow scarf caught on a rock. It's like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, it's absolute proof that Chang is alive. He's even shown us the way up to find him. Come on, uh, Tharky, let's go. And uh, nope, nope, I promised to guide you to the airplane. I gave my word. Now I'm going down for I'm sure Chang is dead. And it's like, no, you have no proof uh, that he's alive. Only a real climber would could scale such a rock face. 
and uh, and the Captain's still trying to see uh, the scarf through some binoculars. Can't really. Uh, and the uh, and and Tharky's saying, "Look, you need special boots, ropes, other things." Chang doesn't have those. He can't climb up there. And but what about the scarf? You know, I don't know how, how it gets up there. Maybe the Yeti. I don't know. But not with Chang. Uh, not Chang. Chang's dead. And then uh, the Captain sees the scarf. Or it looks like he sees the scarf. He says, it's him, it's him. Uh, blistering yetis, it's a barnacle. I mean, blistering, uh, yettering barnacles, it's the blister. Up there, I mean, it's the yeti. Uh, but uh, no one else can see it. He said, no, it's like an enormous monkey with a huge head like a coconut. He must have sensed that he's unspotted and bolted like a rabbit. A likely story. Mm. What is he, the snuffleupagus? That's another thing. Why, why wouldn't they believe him, that he saw something? Yeah, because they believe in the yeti. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a weird thing. Uh... So yeah, so then the captain, uh, so Tharky and Tintin continue to uh, well decide that they should settle up there. So pay pay Tharky what they owe him, and then uh, the captain decides he's going to uh, make some tea. Yeah, I like that. That's this where it's like uh, we're going to settle up, and the captain goes, "Ah, oh, you do it, Tintin. I'm going to brew up uh, some tea." And it's like, oh, okay. So Tintin's got the cash on him. I guess I guess they're both carrying some dough. Because it sounded like the captain was gonna. Cause yeah. The captain's the rich guy in this in this uh, team, right? But we know that Tintin has unlimited cash somewhere about his body at all times. Right. He does a lot of endorsements because he was the first guy on the moon. <laughs> so. Well, it's just that no matter where he is, or how he's dressed, what he's gone through, whether he's changed his clothes three times in the story, he still has money to buy a, a suitcase. Yeah, and he can story. put himself up in a nice hotel. Mm-hmm. Always. So uh, the captain's making some tea uh, with a little uh, stove. Saying, oh, it's the uh, easiest pie. A child of three could do it. It's perfectly simple. And while they're settling things up with five sevens or 35, carry three, five eights or 40, plus three. It sounds like Tintin's pulling a con on this guy yeah. at this point. So you give me that 20 back. Okay, then I'll give you three fives. Okay, now we're going to be settled. Now just give me back that $50 bill and here we go. <laughs> anyway, at that point, kaboom, uh, the stove explodes. In the magazine version, there actually is a longer sequence here, an extra page of, of business where Tintin runs over and kicks the the stove away from the knapsack and everything. And then he hurts his toe. He's jumping up and down, holding his foot. And then, unfortunately, when he kicks it, though, he kicks it into a crate. Why they have a crate of flares? And he kicks it into a crate of flares, which then uh, the captain's bent over trying to uh, get, you know, get into his knapsack and whatever, and he gets a flare right into his bum. Mm-hmm. Then he turns around and he's like, who did that? And he gets a flare into the face. Oh, boy. And then it, they start to generally just fire off out of this crate. There's a big explosion of flares and everything like that. And then it all settles back down. And we carry on with the story after that. Yikes. And it was very easy to remove because it really didn't, adva- it, it didn't advance the story. Yep. It's this kind of an extra long bit of business. And it made the story 63 pages instead of 62. So oh. if you get rid of it. Off it goes. Out it goes. So a few minutes later, goodbye, Tharky. Uh, many thanks. We couldn't have had a better guide. I'll give you an excellent Yelp review. Off the coffee <laughs> walks away. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Yelp. And then it's time to find that yellow scarf. But uh, uh, Tintin turns and goes, hey, Captain, what are you doing? Let's turn the page, see what he's doing. So I'm, nah, I'm going with him. This is nonsense. I'm, I'm leaving. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, uh, would you mind uh, getting the flask in uh, the back pocket of my rucksack? I'm terribly cold, and a drop of brandy would set me right. Mm, brandy? <laughs> and uh, the captain takes a little drink, so we know that's step one on convincing the captain to do something. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and step uh, two is to tell him he can't do it. 
that's right. And uh, say you got cold feet, and what? I'll show you. Uh, which is great, because now you've got a drunk guy climbing a mountain in front of you. <laughs> that's right. And in a, in a state of, of bravado, because he's mad that you've, yeah. you've insulted his manliness. Maybe that's not the best move, Tintin. So yeah. up, up he goes. And that's probably why the captain, who is an experienced sailor, is totally freaked out when St. Elmo's fire starts to appear on his uh the ice pick in his in his knapsack. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, and he, yeah, he has to. Exp- I like that Tintin goes. Come on, as a captain, you must uh, sailor. You must yeah, know this. Yeah. Uh, but yes, his pick starts uh, glowing with Saint Elmo's fire. Yeah. All right, there we go. Uh, and uh, up comes uh, Tintin with uh, with Snowy being dragged behind. Uh, they're gonna have to rope up. Twenty minutes later, uh, they make it to the scarf. Take a look at it, and there's blood stains on it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the captain's okay. So, supposing this is Chang's scarf, what then? What do you suggest we do now? Well, Chang came this way. We must follow the pathway to the top. You call this a pathway? No, all right. Up he goes, up he goes. And then uh, the, the Tintin's first the captain is below. They are tied together. And then the rock face breaks off, and the captain goes falling backwards. Yeah. Uh, painfully. I love this sequence, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Tintin is now being crushed against the rock. Uh, saying uh, slightest move and it's a high dive for us both. Uh, the captain starts swinging back and forth to try to get to the rock with Tintin saying, you know, he obviously doesn't realize each jerk the rope cuts further into me. Uh, he's trying his best and, and but it's no dice. Uh, the captain finally goes, you got to cut me loose. Yeah. got to cut me loose. Tintin's yeah. not having it. It's time for him to play Captain Oates. Nope, not going to do it. Captain brings out his knife. And, uh, and, uh, since it's captain, I implore you, don't do it. You're mad. No blistering particles. My mind is made up. Ah, but then he drops his knife. Too yes. bad. And what's good about it is then it bounces past Tharky. And I just like how that's done. So we get the, him dropping it, the knife bouncing off a rock, and then further bouncing right by Tharky, who calls up to them both. And Tintin is overjoyed that it's Tharky's voice. They're saved. So here's what would have happened otherwise. Uh, so the captain, you know, cut me. All right, fine. So Tintin goes, I'm going to cut you then. I guess I have to cut you. So he cuts him. Tin, uh, captain falls to his death, landing on Tharky. <laughs> Tintin goes down and goes, oh, Tharky was coming to help, huh? Yeah. Well, what a day I'm having. <laughs> so luckily then. And then a little trombone goes, mwah, mwah. It was also very lucky that Tharky didn't get killed by that knife. Mm-hmm. Falling. That's true. So, yeah, Tharky explains, you know, I thought about you. You're risking your life to save a Chinese friend. He's a lot like me. And, uh, I want to help. I felt like a coward. So I came back to follow you. Oh, good for you, Tharky. Let's go on together now. So they keep walking. Yeah. Uh, they try to set up a tent, uh, but uh, the wind picks up and uh, sets it, uh, pull, pulls it away off a cliff. Yeah, that's a very dangerous sequence, too, because we can, Tintin's being dragged towards the, the edge, holding onto the tent. Yep. And the haddock says, let it go, blistering barnacles. And then we get, I think, a great sequence here. I really like this, that uh, bit, bit by bit, we have these sort of reveals of, uh, reveals of, of the Yeti. And so here, here we get the closest shot of him, and, but we still only get the outline because he's covered with the tent and running with it on him. Yeah. Uh, Jacques, um, when they were doing this, when they were doing the outline, plotting for it, Jacques van Melkebeek suggested to Hergé that uh, he not show the Yeti at all in the story. Mm. That just be left a mystery whether, you know, what exactly looked like. But Hergé felt it would be d- too disappointing for young readers yeah. to never see yeah. what's show, been so fascinating to them. Show the monster. Why yeah. not? Yeah. There we are. So, yeah, the monster uh, runs away uh, with his, <laughs> after hitting a rock. Uh, and uh, now it's time to to camp. They all got to get together. And that's together. great too, by the way. That 
the stars coming off of it, and then this, the giant indentation. <laughs> the rock is actually smashed. There's a hole smashed in it from his head. Yes. Yeah. Uh, then uh, yeah, the uh, cap- yeah, the captain sneezes in the tent, which uh, kind of breaks the tent. Uh, you know, if, uh, and uh, Tharky's okay. Well, that's a big disaster. You know, if we stay here now, we'll freeze. We we gotta move, and uh, and uh, you know, we got we gotta go down as fast as possible. We can't spend more time seeking Chang. And Tintin goes, "Oh, Chang." Yeah, he's probably crying too. Yeah. So two days later, throw it back over to you. Uh, two days later, we see them walking on, and just a great shot of their footsteps in the snow as they're. And also of Snowy's footprints in the snow as they're heading down this uh, cliff face or this this mountainside. And it's great because it gives you a sense of how long they've walked and we see them in the distance. We cut up to them and the captain has decided that he's not going any farther. This is it. I'm done. I'm going to sit here. I'm not going to move again. I'm done. Just plops down. No matter what Tintin says, he cannot seem to budge the captain. Even though they see down below a monastery, uh, Tharky with binoculars says, says, look down there. Tintin takes the, the monocle and says, oh, it's a monastery. Hooray, we're saved. Come on, Captain, there's a monastery down there. Or a lamasserie, as it's called in French here. Ah, lamasserie, oui, oui, oui. Because so, uh, yeah. I think it would really be called that, a lamasserie, wouldn't it? Because it's not a monastery. Monks aren't there, it's lamas. So oh, that's a good point. It's All a lamasserie, right. I think. Oh. So it's a bit of a mistranslation by uh, our friends Michael Turner and Leslie Lonsdale-Kuber. But anyway, uh, so then uh, the Captain still refused to budge his. And although Tharky says that they should not stay stay there... He says it's too late, because at that very moment, the entire side of the mountain breaks off, and they go tumbling down in a giant avalanche. Hokey smokes. And we don't see what happens to them. We just see, we cut to a shot uh, of the, the uh, llamas looking up, the Tibetan, or you call them monks, I guess, the Tibetan monks looking up into the hills and seeing this uh, cloud of snow as it's falling down into the valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, one monk says, the white goddess is angry. It is a portent. And like, really? Blessed lightning, you're as gullible as a po uh, prang peasant. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's an avalanche, neither more, more nor less. And then he starts floating. And people listen when blessed lightning starts floating. <laughs> yes. You know. And one person I like is like, ah, oh, blessed lightning and his visions. Uh, when you think he's blind as a bat. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, but he's floating. You gotta give him, you gotta give him that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Bl- so lightning says, I see three men, no, two men and a young boy, uh, with a great heart and a little dog, white as powder snow. They're in mortal danger. And then, uh, uh, great heart is walking, walking. He's at the end of his strength. Great heart falls. And then, uh, blessed lightning comes down. Yeah. And landing on the foot of another monk. <laughs> Yes. And then we got an inter- interesting shot. And what's interesting about this shot is actually when Hergé died, uh, a magazine in France ran this on their cover. Just that shot of Tintin laying there with Snowy crying over him. And it just said Hergé more, you know, so uh, Hergé Aww. dead. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting, I think it's a, an effective use of that image. Yeah, actually. It, it, it is. But I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, so then a, a yak comes up to Tintin. Uh, starts to uh, chew at his scarf. Uh, uh, Tintin goes, eek! I like that he wakes up with an eek, yeah. uh, scaring the yak and uh, saying, oh, nearly uh, strangled me. It's like, oh, okay, so he's got to reach the others, get up, must reach the monastery at all costs. Uh, but no, it's hopeless. This twisted ankle, I can't go on. Oh, what can I do? What can I do? Snowy, it's up to you. Uh, you must carry this message and, and uh, get help from the monastery. So give Snowy a message. But then Snowy sees a bone. A bone and uh, a repeat of the <laughs> what's now becomes a favorite little uh, moment for Hergé of the 
the angel Snowy and the demonic Snowy battling over Snowy's soul. Right. And which one wins? Now, I guess... The bad one. Thinking about... Yeah, and thinking about the story where we have... We do really do have kind of a meeting of of Western religion and Eastern religion in, in that battle of the angel devil on, on Snowy's shoulder with, with the... with So that's sort of representing our sort of, you know, or the Christian or Catholic idea of uh, of sin and temptation. And then... And then, you know, this the Eastern idea, which is, I'm not too sure what it is. I, not, not, I don't think it really explores it in that way in the story, but it's just an interesting yeah. uh, kind of a syncretism. I don't know. Whatever it is, it works because it'll make you levitate. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. there's proof. There's proof whatever they believe in is completely right because you can, you can float. So yep. there you go. Yep. So, uh, Snowy is chewing on his bone and goes, oh, the message. Oh. Oh, what will Tintin say? Nothing. You've killed Tintin. Uh, okay, I, so he's got to go to the monastery. Double we also quick, cover that magazine and uh, then get uh, get the the follow him. So he goes up to a monk and uh, it's it's not working. He's chewing at his uh, robe, trying to pull him. Come with me. Uh, nope, no dice. Uh, runs into the monastery. The boy runs into the monastery, uh, saying it's a mad dog. They try to hit him with sticks. No dice. Uh, running, running. Uh, until they sticks, get him. they try to hit him with staves. Staves, very good. Staffs, staves, sticks, stones, whatever will break his bones. <laughs> uh, but then one of the monks says, "Don't, don't uh, touch that dog. It's uh, undoubtedly uh, Powder Snow, the dog that Blessed Lightning saw in a vision only a little while ago." So uh, they follow him, and then two days later, you see the ringing of a of a drum or banging of a drum. Yeah, it's weird that it's 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 a. Uh... It's weird that it's sound affected as a dong when it really looks like a drum and not a gong. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I guess it is a gong because it says it makes dong sounds. So it's like a bell. Uh, so we see the captain waking up. Yeah. Being startled by two statues. Two statues. Uh, and I'm not too sure what, where these fit into Buddhist theology or, or it's... Uh, I'm sure they're real, though. There would be no reason to draw them in such detail. If yeah, yeah, no. The only thing I can think of is that they're uh, Buddhist wisdom kings. Which are these kind of different, they're not really part of the, the Buddha story, but they're these sort of uh, other, I guess, kind of sub-saints that uh, mm. are part of the... That's all I can suggest, That's uh, as far as I know. I, I'm not really too up on Buddhism. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, so uh, then the captain is startled by them, but uh, shakes it off, then looks out and is again startled again. But I was wasn't a, a university student in the 60s. Fair enough. Uh, but it's a, just a big kite. It's these boy monks flying kites. All right. Uh, and uh, goes to put his uh, boots on. In doing so, accidentally uh, breaks a bowl. Yeah, like, it's a oh. weird. It's a weird scene, but good. But just weird. Like, why is it there? Why does he kick over a, a chest and break a well, break a vase? Because either his feet have swollen or his boots have shrunk. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Uh, then meanwhile, you didn't really explain it, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, d- you described really explain. it. Explain. Yeah. <laughs> you just described it for us. So uh, so Tintin is well. That's a thing. If you've been climbing for a long period of time, mm-hmm. and then you take off your shoes, you will yeah. not be able to put your shoes back on. Yeah. You know. But if you keep your shoes on, you'll be able. Especially uh, if Abdullah is nearby and he's stuffed them with newspaper. Oh, Abdullah! There's your ice cream slap. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> uh, I guess it's it's not Blessed Lightning who's talking to, but it's the head monk. You know, yes, uh, the Grand Abbot. He's saying, oh, I thought there was three of you. Uh, says, oh, my friend is still asleep. He's completely exhausted, Grand Abbot. Uh, yeah, it seems... He doesn't say, yeah. He says, yes, it seems that you men from other lands have a strange, uncontrollable desire to climb the highest mountains at all costs, even at the risks of your lives. Why is this? And Tintin goes, because they're there. Wow. 
No, it doesn't. He goes, uh, in our case, it's not a search for glory or love of climbing. Uh, what brought us here was, and there's a knock on the door. Uh, Captain comes in, uh, wearing his, in his stocking feet, holding his shoes, and asking if anyone has a shoehorn. <laughs> he, uh, he hugs Tintin, very happy, but in doing so, uh, swings those shoes around and hits himself in the head with them. <laughs> Kicks himself with his shoes. Oh, Captain. Oh, and the, it's the first time these monks have seen comedy relief. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, the guy lands on the person's foot. Yeah, that's so right. They're used they have blessed thing. lightning. They're used to that. Anyway, so we get an exposition dump. About everything that we know already, uh, more stuff we know already, more stuff we know already, and uh, and then uh, the captain says, and to crown everything, uh, there was as much sign of uh, Chang as there is hair on his head, pointing to a bald man. And the man goes, what do you say? What is there on my head? <laughs> Are you looking at me? Yeah. Let's, if you want to go? I'm a monk, <laughs> but you know, we can, we can do some stuff. Anyway. So we say uh, the uh, the abbot says for the uh, for the sole purpose uh, of your trip was uh, searching for Chang. You braved all these dangers, and you would have died if your dog had not warned us. Well, uh, you know, very, they're very impressed by all this. You know, uh, here in Tibet and the mountains, uh, keep those whom they take. The vultures make sure that no traces remain. Uh, such will have been the fate of your friend Chang. You will never, never find the slightest sign of him. Then we hear from off panel. There's one anyway. Uh, Captain's uh, saying, and the other's going to follow suit, you know, or I'll know the reason why. While well, he's putting on his boots. Yes, he successfully got one foot into a into a boot. Well, there we go. Nah, I guess nothing's happening. Off they go. They're leaving. So one thing is this: the fourth time that he's been made, forced to to suspend his uh, search for Chang. It's a lot. It's a lot of times. Everyone's yeah. like, we got to go. They get their their rucksacks on their their knapsacks on, and then they turn around and start walking off. Yeah, you want to like have. And then? Yeah, you want to have like Tintin take Chang at the end and like run him by everyone who said they was dead and just go, huh? What do you think now? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, oh, in your face. That's right. Uh, the and then um, uh, lightning uh, comes up saying, "Oh, you've forgotten this," and it was Chang's uh, scarf. Uh, but as Tintin approaches, he floats. It's like a moment from the dead zone. Yes, I see the horn of the yak below the eye. A cave. I see. I see a boy. The scarf belongs to him. Uh, he's lying on a, bran- uh, a, ca- a couch of juniper branches. Uh, he's possessed by devils. He has a fever. But who is this approaching him? I cannot see clearly. Oh, my God. The... No, he says, oh, my God. He says, oh, the Magoo. Uh, and then Mr. Magoo right. is coming. That's right. Yeah, my boy. Oh, wow. Uh, Chang. Uh, <laughs> and then he comes back down to earth with the captain saying, pity. It's uh, too late to uh, snap the flying father. He was trying to take a picture of him. He's so there you go. Earth. So in the, I just want to say, in the French version, what uh, what uh, Blessed Lightning says is, he says, I see, I see, le museau du yak. So the, the yak's note, he says there. Mm. Uh, in the ca- in a cave, I see. So so there you go. That's where the title was going to come from. Very good. That very moment. All right. Uh, but he can't remember anything that he just said. Uh, Here it's can't. changed to the horn of a yak rather than the snout of a yak in the, in the English version. Oh, very good. Uh, but uh, Lightning doesn't understand. Says, "Please uh, go in peace." Here's the scarf, and Tintin's, "Oh, okay." Uh, but uh, but now Tintin's even more determined. We must go see the Grand Abbot. Yes, they're gonna do who's on first. <laughs> That's right, oh, brother. So please continue. I'm not gonna follow that. <laughs> so they go to the Grand Abbot, who says, "The horn of the yak," or the I'm gonna say he says, "The yak snout." There is a mountain of that name, three days' march from here, near the village of Cherubang. What more did he say? Cherubang. He mentioned an eye and a cave. 
captain is, of course, don't tell me you're taking all this hocus pocus seriously, which I, I always kind of wonder. Like, if you saw a guy float yeah. and give you some information, right. pretty much the floating yeah. would give the information a little bit of truth to it. That's just me. I'm about that. When I see people floating and they tell me stuff, I listen. Yep. I don't know. Is this me? Yep. That's how Doug Henning sold you that uh, that boat. Yeah, that's right. It's all magic. Uh, so the uh, Grand the Grand Abbot, I was going to call him the Grand Vizier after Habit's constant re, uh, renaming of him. He says, there are many things that occur here in Tibet that seem unbelievable to you men of the West. Yeah, Ian. It's levitation. <laughs> then, he des- then he described my friend Chang lying on a bed of branches. He saw someone approaching, Chang, and then, as though terrified, he shouted, The Migu. What did he mean by the Migu? The Migu. You sure you heard right? The Migu, it is a name given here to the abominable snowman. In Nepal, they call it Yeti, or Yeti. Here, it is the Migu. But then, Gradabit, so then this guy says, Do not enter. He is speaking with the strangers. So we see two of the monks outside, and one has uh, swing on a tray. Then the then the uh, Grand Abbot said, it, is, it, is, it would be better if your friend were dead than to be in the hands of the Yeti. The yeah. Yeti never surrenders his prey. Now Tintin is even more determined, though. He says, very well, I'll go alone if necessary. My friend is in danger. You can't expect me to desert him now. And Haddock is so angry. He says, no, you shan't go. Neither alone nor with me. You got round me once, but it won't happen again. There's been enough skylarking. I won't have any more. You come home to Marlin Spike with me, blistering barnacles, and there's an end to it. And then Tindon asked the, the Grand Abbot, just where is the mountain they call the Yak Snout? I'm going to keep with that. Say sure. something to him, Grand, Grand, Grandfather. We can give up this crazy idea. We kind of miss the fact that uh, Haddock cannot remember uh, the Grand Abbot's name. Right. Which would be insulting to the Grand Abbot if we didn't already know that there's a certain person who can't remember Haddock's name. So it kind of all works out. It's sure, kind of karma. Why not? Karma all around. Yeah. Near the village of Cher- oh, Cherubang. It's a kind of a silly pun. Three days march from here. What is the pun on Cherubank? Cherubank. Yeah. Like a, a hol- it's a kind of I think a holiday in England, like a oh, okay. like a holiday trip. It's called the Cherubank. All right. If you go on a bus trip. Fair enough. Uh, just instead of a G at the end, there's a C. Okay. It comes from French, I imagine, but I'm not too sure why. It's the kind of joke that makes you go, oh yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. They they did that. So. Tintin's not having it. Tintin's I'm not still having it. it. He's still gonna go because he's Tintin. We already have established the fact that nothing can stop Tintin from going. So. Captain storms out, uh, and as the uh, monks are waiting by the door, the one with a tray f- with food for the grand for the uh, for the grand abbot, had it come storming out and knocks the tray into his face. The next day, three days later. Oh, sorry, three days later in Cherubang, the children are so excited to see a stranger. It is Tintin. We can tell because of his his uh, luminous blue sweater. Yep. All the children follow him, so excited to see him, greeting him with their tongue sticking out. And then Tintin talks to an old man. He says, "To the go to the horn of the yak or the yak snout. No one, no one, says no one. Uh, horn of the yak, Migu, Migu. So as we know, this guy warning pretty, him off, warning yeah. him off. Tintin's. I've had enough of this. Listen, I'm gonna go. Uh, then here's from outside. You little scallywags. Is that what you teach in school? Huh? What? And it turns out the captain is there. Oh, captain. He's on a horse. He's uh, he's got his doing kind of the turkey hand." Uh, yeah. Thumb to nose uh, he, at, the, he's, at the kids. He's true to everyone except for, to himself. Yeah. He uh, and it, it doesn't know that the kids sticking their tongue out. Uh, that's how they say hello. It's yeah. a greeting. It's friendly. It's like, oh, all right, good to know. Once again, a little bit of trivia from uh, Neil D- Neil David and Neil David. Mm-hmm. Everyone's warning: don't go up there. Yeah. Don't go up there. But they're gonna go up there. 
uh, and, to, and they get a little guide uh, to take them uh, to the base of the hill and to say goodbye. The captain sticks out his tongue, and now the kid gives him the thumb to the nose and the wiggling fingers, <laughs> and whoa, and then back, up they go. And then the captain's doing a double double uh, hands to the face with a yeah. <laughs> It's good. You like the captain. Yes. You like the guy. Yeah. More more faces. Yeah. Squishing his mush. He's not up. really good with the kids, but yeah, we like the captain. Yeah. The captain and the kids would be a totally different strip. Sure would. So uh, up they uh, up they go. Uh, the captain uh, is uh, saying, "Oh, the kid needs a lesson in good manners." And the next morning, uh, once again, up they go. Say with the ca- with the captain saying, uh, "You're going to stumble upon the den of a teddy bear, I suppose. It'd be a miracle." And he's like, nope, determined, up they go, and, uh, and Tintin goes, see, what I tell you, see, it's unmistakable. That mountain there, look at its shape. You know, uh, we must try to arrive at the foot of the mountain at nightfall and make sure our tent is well hidden. Three days later. Looking at it, you can see why they changed it to the axe horn, because it doesn't really look like a snout at all. Not at all. It's pretty pointy. Yep, three days later, and there are three skeletons. They're all dead. <laughs> nope, that's not how it goes at all. <laughs> uh, forgot water. That's right. <laughs> that would be awful. Uh, angry captain saying, you know, he's getting fed up. He's been here for three days waiting for this confounded uh, Migu of yours to poke his nose out. And uh, uh, complaining, complaining, complaining. And then, oh, they hear it. And then they look through binoculars. And they see a shadow. Yes, they see very, a silhouette. Very yeah. similar to how a Bigfoot uh, walks yeah, when in, that, true. in that footage of famous it's footage of the Bigfoot. True, the Zapruder film mm-hmm. of Bigfoot. Uh, I'm telling you, I don't think Bigfoot was who did it, but all right, I'm not going to convince you on this. walking along the grassy knoll. That's right. Uh, so Tintin watch, follows him with the binoculars. It's going. He's disappeared. So now the plan is for Tintin to head up to the cave, the captain to warn him. Of course, the captain is very eager for Tintin to get a picture of Bigfoot, So, or sorry, of Yeti, so he gives him the uh, camera to take a uh, picture. Yeah. By the way, for all this disbelief earlier about everything else, mm-hmm. the captain saw the Yeti. Yes. That's all I'm throwing out there. Okay, so the Why captain... He, oh, yeah, he saw him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, they, they go to the entrance, and the uh, captain's very nervous. I don't think it was that he thought that he wouldn't see the Yeti, or that he didn't believe the Yeti was there. I think he felt it was unbelievable that they would find the cave that uh, Chang was in in this huge area. This is this is one little plot point that I have a little problem with. Okay. The captain did see the Yeti. Yes, yeah. And so he saw it as in, like, the Yeti's close enough that I can see the Yeti. Yeah. And yet they keep going up. And he's never quite worried about there's a Yeti, though he saw the Yeti. Yeah. It's like, if you spotted Bigfoot in the woods, mm-hmm. now you're wandering through the woods, you'd have Bigfoot on the brain for most of your trip, I would yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So the captain's worried. It uh, depends if Bigfoot stole your bottle of whiskey, though, how you feel about <laughs> that's that That's true. Uh, chewing at his glove, you know, worried I should never have let him go. I uh, hope I've done nothing wrong. And in the background, you see the uh, silhouette again of the Yeti cresting over the hill. Yep, and the Yeti looks surprised. I don't think he looks surprised. I think it's so. I think it's, it's just supposed a to. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, I think it's sort of a. There he is. So uh, okay, I'll let you do this scene because it's a nice scene. In it. So in this sequence, uh, we see uh, Tintin walking to the cave, and of course, I love how the caves are inked in. Uh, in there, Shea stories. Let me actually just say before this, when I was on page 55 and I'm reading this, I know it goes mm-hmm. to page 62, and I thought, like, is this going to be another one of these stories where he doesn't find him? Because it felt like that. Like, there's yeah. not enough time right? to find the Yeti, yeah. to get Chang out of here and yeah. deal with anything. I'm on page 55 of a, of a 62-page story, and I knew I know page 62 is going to be wrapping things up. Yeah. They're, in five pages... How are we going to deal with all this? Mm-hmm. Well, let's see how they do. Please continue. Pretty well, actually. I think yeah. it's not. I don't think it's that rushed an ending. Uh, unlike, say, the Red Sea Sharks, where he had like forty papers to try to tie it <laughs> yeah. up, forty different headlines trying to tie up all these loose yes, ends. Yes, that's right. Uh, 
so he's calling for Chang as he walks into this cave. Chang, and then we hear Chang answer, who, who's there? Who is it? Tintin is now crying with joy. Chang, it's me. It's Tintin. Chang, my poor Chang. He runs over. Chang sits up. Tintin. It's interesting, Lee. You know, who is it? What's it matter? What's it matter? Yeah. Does it have to be someone you know? Just Well, if someone was saying your name, though, you'd wonder who it was. That's you, true. You could understand that's that just fair. anybody okay. coming just in. Like, how about just anyone come and help me? I don't yeah, care who you yeah, are. Yeah, but if you know my name, that's more interesting. All right. No, Tintin. So he says, we ha- hurry, we have to go. Wrap yourself up in my anorak and we'll go. He says, no, Tintin, I can't. I have in the strength. Besides, suppose he comes back. There's no danger. One of my friends is waiting outside. Any sign of Yeti and he'll whistle. Suddenly the captain sees the Yeti. We cut outside. The captain, his hat flies off his head. He ducks down behind the rock. He says, Wait, why didn't I hear him coming? Quick, I must whistle. Yes. Then we got a lot of really good business. His face getting steadily, steadily redder as he turned. Finally, he just has to yell out, Tin, blow, Tin, Tin, look out. And at that moment, we see the hand and the foot of the Yeti as he begins to enter the cave. Tintin is shocked. For the very first time in the story, as we to- hit the top of page 57, we see the Yeti. A big head like a football, uh, an American football, covered with hair. He growls. He almost stomps on Snowy, who runs for cover. The captain is, help, fire, murder, what, whatever shall I do? We cut back to the, the Yeti threateningly, with his arms raised, walking towards Tintin. Yeah, who's, very scary scene. Yeah, Tintin is holding his, his uh, climbing pick. His ice pick, or whatever you want to call it, his axe. What I don't want to call those things. I should know something about mountaineering, but I don't. I'd uh, say a pick, climbing pick. Is yeah. that right? Sure. Oh, well, it's a carabineer. Let's call it that, right? Yeah, let's do that. Sure. It's totally not, but let's call it that anyway. Uh, action stations. Full steam ahead. Yells the captain. I like how he psychs himself up. He comes running up the hill. Then Tintin, who's so startled, he accidentally fires off the camera and all well, the flash anyway. It temporarily blinds the Yeti, who's so shocked at this sudden flash of light that he goes running out of the cave just as Haddock approaches it, and Haddock gets bowled over by the fleeing Yeti, who is running so fast he leaves little clouds of of dust in the air. The captain is now on the ground with some swirling stars. He says, what happened? An atom bomb, wasn't it? Are we all dead? No, it was the Yeti. Here, get up. And so then, uh, it was quick, Chang's here. We must carry him to the camp at once. The Yeti was blinded by the flashball, but he may come back. Right. And before we get to the two hours later recap, uh, Tintin spends the next two hours going, see, see, who's alive? Is it Chang? <laughs> I think Chang's alive. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Every little see? while. He goes, Captain, Captain, look to, your, look to your right. Or look to your left. Look to your left. What do you see? What do you, Chang. <laughs> Chang is what you see. <laughs> then he pretends to sneeze. He goes, ah, oh, ah, oh, oh, Chang. Right over there. <laughs> Chang. Chang. So then Chang tells us the story. We won't go too much in this story. It's well, it is an interesting story. But one thing that's interesting is uh, well, we look, we see the plane. Um, what happened was in the original story, uh, the plane was was had all the markings of a, a real airline, Air right. India. And when the story came out, Air India came to Erge, perhaps feeling a little betrayed because it actually provided Airway with a lot Erge, sorry, with a lot of information right. about their airline, this, how you know the the steward, how the stewardesses, or as I like to call them, flight nurses, dressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, how the planes look, the, inter- the interior of the planes. The, so they give them all this stuff, and then Airjay proceeds to uh, show their plane crashed. They never had a plane crash in the history of the airline. Right. And so Airjay does this uh, plane crash with their, with their logo on the plane and everything else. So they came to him and you know felt, that's, that's not very fair. Let's maybe change that. Uh, kind of makes us look bad. We've never had a crash. People are kind of paranoid about that, which is why we have flight nurses on the planes. Yeah. And so Airjay changed the... The original, like if you look back at um, 
the DC-3 that he and Haddock fly in to, uh, to Kathmandu, I guess, when, they, when the story opens yeah. um, after they leave India. You can see that it's an Air India plane and it has the actual Air India markings. Right. But if we go to page, um, I think it's 37 that has the uh, crash on it. Let's see. Page, yeah, page 37 with, oh no, 30, oh. did I miss the page? I think so. Page 35, 30 something or other, it doesn't matter anyway. But if you go to that page with the crash and look at the, and the markings, it's now marked as a, with a different marking than the Air India. And Is this it's, the one you're looking at? Page 28? Yeah, that's right. Page 28. I'm sorry. I jumped ahead. Uh, it's a different marking, and he made it into an air, airline called Sari Air. And if you look at the French one, if you go to page all the way back to near the beginning of the story, mm-hmm. back to page 2, where they're, where they're looking at the, um, the air catastrophe in Nepal, yep. in the French version, it says Sari Air. In the English version, it says Air India. They didn't bother to change it in that oh. version. It says Air India there. And then if you look, but if you look at the plane itself in the, now we have to wait back all the way back to, to the story that, um, that, uh, Chang is telling. Yeah. So if we zip back to page 58, if you look there, he, he's changed the logo on the tail. But if you look along the side of the plane, it still says Air India. Oh. Right here. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny. So the change to here, change to there, but did not change it everywhere. So Chang tells a story and, uh, it's, uh, yep, the plane crashed. He was the sole survivor. Uh, wandered. Uh, the Yeti found him. Uh, Not a great movie. No. Uh, uh, took him in. Oh, it's Lone Survivor, sir. There you are. Uh, he carved his uh, name on uh, on that rock that uh, that we saw, and the uh, Yeti took him to another another cave. Uh, yeah, when when he saw the rescuers coming, yep. he uh, took him. So that that's kind of a bad act by the Yeti. Although you could maybe argue that he thought that they were he didn't know who they were. That his whole life has been fleeing men. And and hiding from them, and so he thought that they're th- they're a threat to Chang as yeah, well as to himself. Could very well yeah, be. Yeah. And uh, and he's been feeding Chang uh, small rodents uh, yes, that Chang has been forcing himself to eat. Yes. So that's the most disturbing part of this whole story to well, me. Maybe it'd be more disturbing if he didn't have to force himself to eat them. How so? He just was enjoying them. Yeah, it would be more disturbing, I guess. <laughs> All right. So anyway, that's generally the story. Uh, Yeti, not that bad a guy. Uh, there you are, and off they walk. And we see the Yeti watching them from a distance. A misunderstood coconut head. That's right. Uh, the uh, as the captain called him, didn't he? Yep. The uh, the captain then like sneezes, and we hear a <laughs> blows his nose. Yeah. And he runs away in fear. And uh, the the brave captain shakes his fist at the Yeti as he runs away. You antediluvian bulldozer. You meg megacycle pyromaniac. <laughs> you jobber now. I'll mm-hmm. turn you into a hearth rug. Uh, and uh, Tintin says, you called him the poor snowman. How strange, the only one who knows him, and you don't call him abominable. And Chang is, of course I don't. Uh, he took care of me. Uh, without him, I'd have died of hunger. Aww. Aww. Also, no one else uses the word abominable for anything else. So it's just that it's one true snowman. enough, yeah. Uh, so a few days later, they arrive. The strangers are back. Uh, Tintin, you know, walks to the village going, see, uh, see, look, see. Can I just interrupt yeah, you go ahead. with the abominable Dr. Fibes? All right, very good. Thank you. Uh, then a couple of days later, three days later, uh, they're, they're wandering again, uh, saying, we're nearly there, Chang. You'll soon be on the mend. Uh, Captain is singing, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and yeah. pom, pom, pom. I like when he does that. Then we hear pom, a, pom, pom. Then we, then we hear sound of music. Yeah, sort of. If you can call poop, pom, toot, zing, dong, boom, tingling music. I think I can. Okay, you did. Because uh, the monks coming, uh, coming up the hill. Uh, a procession with cymbals and drums and... 
uh, a giant horn, much like you'd see in uh, Switzerland. Yeah, the Grand Abbot is there, uh, saying, Greetings, O great heart. Uh, following uh, our custom, I present you with a scarf of silk. Uh, Blessed Lightning told us of your approach, and uh, I have to come meet you, so that I may bow and, and deference before you. What, before me, says Tintin? But yes, what you have achieved, few could have dared to undertake. Blessings upon you, great heart, for the strength of your friendship, for your courage, and for your steadfastness. We were totally wrong. How wrong we all were. <laughs> we're really wrong. We're the wrongest wrongs that yeah, ever wronged. Yeah. Yeah. And say, Tintin and say, says, I'd just like to say one thing. Chang, <laughs> over there, everybody. And then the, uh, the abbot turns to the captain says, You too, rumbling thunder, blessings upon you, for in spite of all, you have faith that moves mountains. Moves them, I'd sooner flatten them. Just take a compliment, yeah. you jerk. Well, rumbling thunder, it refers to as, uh, anyway. Okay. And, uh, and the abbot continues, And here is the boy who you snatched from the jaws of the migu. Blessings upon you, young man, for you inspired great devotion in the hearts of these two strangers. And Snowy, what about me? Don't I get a word? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He should. How about Snowy? Who who drank whiskey and fell off a cliff into the water? <laughs> That's right. Snowy, who who got a bone and let a let a, a note that would save the three of them uh, from a certain death flutter away in the wind? Snowy. He stayed with Tintin while he was in the hole and stayed with him and howled and that's, uh, that's how he true. saved Tintin's life. So uh, the there. captain's looking at this uh, giant, it looks like a horn. Thinks, oh, maybe a blow in here. He does. Uh, and is uh, kind of gets some scolding looks. A little abashed. That. A little, a little abashed. abashed. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So now our week has passed. Final and, page. And uh, it looks like Chang's feeling better. I'll let you wrap this up. Go for it. Sure. Well, uh, yes, we see a procession of, of horses, or caravan, I guess you could call it, of horses as they are leaving the monastery. And I invite everyone to look to the far right. Just on, If you look in the monastery, you can see a little figure floating in the air. In We see Blessed Lightning there floating. Oh, just, nice. It's, it's actually not in the magazine version, only in the book version that, right. that was added. But, and what's, uh, what's he saying? He's spoiling the Castafiori Emerald story. That's right. <laughs> that's right, right now. I see jewels. I see... Singing Faust. I see Singing Faust. I see. Uh, how are you feeling now, Chang? Chang says, much better. A good rest and being well looked after. He's completely recovered. Meanwhile, Snowy is very excited to see a pile of bones in lying in this uh, sort, of, it's sort of a desert area, isn't it? Yeah. We hear a howoo from the mountains. The captain says that old reprobate again. <laughs> yeah, a goodbye from uh, the Yeti. Yeti, yep. The Yeti has followed them a long distance. Yes. He's followed them like well, he's followed at least two weeks worth of walking. Sure. Well, he's he's losing Chang, so he's very sad. Mm. Everyone likes Chang. Chang is a great guy. Um, and he says, "You know what?" Chang says to Tintin, "You know, I hope they never succeed in finding him. They treat him like some wild animal. I tell you, Tintin, from the way he took care of me, I couldn't help wondering if deep down he hadn't a human soul." And Tintin says, "Who knows?" And then the final panel is the Yeti, obviously broken-hearted. Looking out at the uh, caravan of horses as they leave the... Uh, and what's funny about before that... Before turning to slaughter all the monks in the monks. I've never... <laughs> I've not connected before, but there's a great painting by this Victorian painter called G.F. Watts. And it's a painting of the Minotaur standing at, a, at the wall, looking out across the ocean. Mm-hmm. And you get this sense of what a sad life he leads hmm. in this painting. And it, uh, this has the same feeling to me. This, yeah, that uh, was the Minotaur's only friend. His only family. Not Minotaur, sorry. Uh, every Yeti. time I say Minotaur instead of Yeti, everybody, <laughs> right. please eat a sandwich. <laughs> eat a giant sandwich. Uh, no, it's a very nice last last shot, but it is yeah. like, boy, that Yeti has followed them a long way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, no, I'm. I was amazed, like they were what they were able to achieve in the last five pages. Yes, that's a five-page go, 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 go. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, really good story. Uh, good character stuff. A little bit of repetition, and where it's all like he's dead, he's not dead. I'm going. I'm not going. Now I'm going. Yeah, you know, a bit of that, but think, very well yeah, done. It's I think a simple Hergé, story yeah. told well and presented very, very well. Yeah, I think Erge needed Tintin to face absolute hopelessness. Yeah. And to fight against despair and to battle that and come out ahead of it, you know. So it's not just, it's not just Haddock. It's not just Tharky. It's everyone. Yeah. Is telling him that it's hopeless. And Tintin inspires people to do more than they want to, too. Mm-hmm. Like he yeah. inspires, I mean, Captain, obviously he would, but he inspires Tharky. Tharky's yeah. like, no, I'm, I guess I gotta be on board for this. He yeah. inspires like the monks. And yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Here we go. Inspires everybody. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's a re- really good story. I, I, I can see how, personal it was for for Hergé and uh you know what's interesting about the story is that it it was fairly popular um it was probably a step down in terms of popularity from say the Red Sea Sharks okay you know and and LeBlanc we'll kind of learn about next week LeBlanc LeBlanc wanted to kind of change which the direction that Hergé was going in with his stories but we can talk about that next time. All right, very good. When we look at what book, Ian, are we going to... And uh, we're going to be looking at next time, as I said, the Castafiori uh, Emerald. Yes. Now, if there's anything that uh, you'd like to add to the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. And SneakyDragon.com is our webpage. Uh, that's where our message boards are. It's also the name of our other podcast that we do, where we talk about things that are not Tintin. Hmm. Often our lives or anything else that's on our mind. So if you want to hear more of this, but without as much Tintin, that's where you go. SneakyDragon.com. But... As I said, that's our message boards, and that's where you can uh, give us trivia or things that we've missed. As uh, it's, it's hard to believe Dave would miss something, but occasionally he does, and we do love to hear from you. Yes. Uh, if you prefer to use email, why not? Why not do that? Uh, SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com is our email address. That's SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com. If you're yes. on Facebook, and I think you're legally mandated to be on Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, we also have a page there, Totally Tintin. So if you like that, as in like that, we'd appreciate it. And uh, since we're asking you for favors, let's ask you this as well. Uh, if you can go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast, that helps people to find our podcast. Uh, and if you want to write us a review, that would also be uh, great. Okay. But that's up to you. Sure. All right, we can't we can't pressure you. No, we can, well, yeah, well, we're not Tintin. Nor nor shall we. No, yeah. we won't. Yeah, please. Yeah, Tintin. That he's the he's the great convincer in yes. this story. Yes. Yeah. But no. Uh, all in all, yeah, I thought this was a really well done story. Good simple story told very very well. Yeah, one of my favorites. Oh, good. Yeah. All right, but we'll Top learn at three. the very end. Top three. Uh, what your favorites are. Okay. Yeah, we're getting to the end here. We are. Yeah. What we're going to do, we'll let you know, is we're going to get to the end. We're going to do uh, Tintin and Alpha Art. Then we're going to do uh, the movies. Yep. Uh, probably as one episode. Yeah, a pretty quick overview of the films, I think, and, and the cartoons. Uh, then we're considering doing one more episode where we just answer any questions you might have, or if there's something we haven't brought up in the entire series that you're like, well, why not talk about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about that. So yep. uh, you might want to think about what you want to ask us for that and put that on our message boards as well. So if there's something you want us a question, or something along those lines uh, for our final episode, uh, please put that there then then. And we will do that <laughs> thing that you will. said. Okay, fair enough. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I've been Ian Boothby. And I've been David Dedrick. And this has been Totally Tintin. Next time, Cast a Fury Admiral. See you then.